TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who, believe it or not, is walking on air, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, Andy will be joining Dan to review Once Upon a Time. Then I'll be here for the rest of the show as we're back to reviewing pretty much a full schedule of our favorite shows, including Castle, Person of Interest, Supernatural, and two episodes of Legend of Korra, and our sitcom section including How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Homeland, Walking Dead, Sleepy Hollow, The Blacklist, New Girl, Revolution, Elementary, and a few others as well. But before we get into all of that, we've got everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. CBS has officially ordered a How I Met Your Mother spinoff pilot called How I Met Your Dad. Boo! CBS has given the project a pilot production commitment, which is still being referred to as How I Met Your Dad, because the network CBS isn't very creative with its show titles these days and are hoping to cash in on the success of the original series. How I Met Your Mother's co-creators Craig Thomas and Carter Bays are writing and executive producing, along with Up All Night creator Emily Spivey. As previously announced, the show would be told from a female point of view, with a new group of friends presumably gathering around to hear a really long story about how some lady met her husband. As someone who still watching and enjoying the ninth and final season of How I Met Your Mother, I think this is a terrible idea because I also think many of my 8 million fellow viewers are only still watching out of loyalty. Well, that's not me. I think a lot of people it is. How yes. I Met Your Mother isn't a bad show, but it's except for the last couple episodes and really this whole season, it's not what it used to be. And I'm, I'm afraid CBS will find that the series viewership won't stick around for a spinoff, especially one with all new characters. I agree. That's where I'm at. I feel the same way. Yeah. Downton Abbey renewed for season five. Downton Abbey's doors will remain open for another year. British broadcaster ITV has ordered a fifth season of the International Phenom to debut next fall in the UK and presumably and unfortunately January 2015 in the US on PBS. Downton Abbey's fourth season starts stateside on January 5th at 9, 8 central. Yeah, sounds good. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I really enjoy this series. Angela Lansbury says NBC's Murder, She Wrote remake is a mistake. I agree. Lansbury, who amassed 12 Emmy nominations and four Golden Globe wins during her 12-season run as mystery writer-solver Jessica Fletcher, takes issue with NBC's plan to reboot the CBS series, if only because of, you know, the title. I think it's a mistake to call it Murder, She Wrote, Lansbury tells the Associated Press, because Murder, She Wrote will always be about Cabot Cove and this wonderful little group of people who told those lovely stories and enjoyed a piece of that place. They also enjoyed Jessica Fletcher, who is a rare and very individual kind of person. So I'm sorry that they have to use the title Murder, She Wrote, even though it's their right. 
NBC's new take on Murder, She Wrote, which is only at the pilot stage, stars Academy Award winner Octavia Spencer as a hospital administrator and amateur sleuth who, after self-publishing her first mystery novel, sets out to help solve real-life crimes. Lansbury hails her would-be successor as absolutely wonderful, a lovely actress, having seen Spencer's acclaimed turn in The Help. So I wish her well, but I wish it wasn't in Murder, She Wrote. I agree, but I think the whole idea is a bad one. Create a completely new series with new characters. Don't tread on the familiar because you don't have enough creativity to come up with something on your own. My guess is this will never get beyond the pilot stage. I see that. I mean, after what happened with Ironside yeah. and that disaster, I don't think this is going to work as well. And again, Angela Lansbury made that character her own. Absolutely. So to try to recreate that, you're just not going to do it. It's like trying to remake Castle without Nathan Fillion. Exactly. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And I thought she was very tactful in her explanation. It's not that I don't think that Octavia Spencer is going to be good in this. I think she's amazing. She She's probably the best person to do this. I just wish they weren't doing it. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's very tactful in how she handles the media and her opinions on things. Oh, she is all class. All and class. And that's was, why people love her. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great way of saying it, too. NBC, you're looking bad doing this. That's all I've got to say. John Oliver leaving The Daily Show for new HBO series. Well-deserved. John Oliver's time hosting The Daily Show this summer was very well-received, so well-received that he will now be leaving The Daily Show, where he's been a longtime correspondent for a new HBO series. It will be a current event discussion show of his own, described as a topical comedy series that will launch sometime in 2014. Said HBO's president, Michael Lombardo, We weren't otherwise searching for another weekly talk show, but when we saw John Oliver handling host duties on The Daily Show, we knew that his singular perspective and distinct voice belonged on HBO. We are extremely excited that John has agreed to make HBO his home. It's not clear when Oliver will have his last on-screen appearance on The Daily Show, but Oliver will also be seen soon on Community, which returns January 2nd on NBC, where he's reprising his role as Professor Duncan for six episodes in season five. Great news for John Oliver, and I have to say, he was brilliant this summer as a fill-in for John Stewart, so this will be yet another show I have to watch when it starts in 2014. Also, side note, because it's on HBO, all the cussing will be unedited. Good for him, though. <laughs> yeah. He did some great work this summer, so glad to see he was rewarded for that. You know, he really did. And I, I was afraid that The Daily Show quality would go down because Jon Stewart wasn't there. And even Jon Stewart said it, it got better when John Oliver was hosting. Yeah. And that that's just a testament to how much enthusiasm and how great Oliver was when he was doing it. And it kind of almost didn't make sense for Oliver just to go back to being a correspondent because he was so good. And you knew that that meant right. he was going to get his own show eventually. And I, I really am just looking forward to it because I really enjoy John Oliver and I think he's going to be great. AMC renews Hell on Wheels for season four. Hell on Wheels fans, you can stop holding your breath. The show will be back for a fourth season. AMC gave the order today, nearly six weeks after the hardly a finale season three finale, for another round of Western. And it appears that the network is more confident in the series than ever before because after three ten-episode seasons, season four will be expanding to 13 episodes. And it won't even be split into two halves to drag out the suspense. All of season four will air next summer. Good news for those of us that love this show. Yeah, is really kicking it off the shows right now. Yep. Doing well. And another one, AMC's Walking Dead spinoff premise revealed. 
AMC has promised that its in the works Walking Dead spinoff will shed light on a new, previously unseen corner of the zombie apocalypse, perhaps one where the living outnumbered the undead. There's an increasing buzz that the offshoot will be a prequel of sorts, one that would chronicle the early days of the epidemic and the effort to contain it. In a recent interview with IGN series creator Robert Kirkman, who is shepherding the spinoff along with fellow Walking Dead EPs Gail Ann Hurd and David Alpert, confirmed that the new series will be set in a different location and feature completely different people. Insiders caution that the project is in the very early stages of development and nothing is set in stone. Translation, even if this is the plan, it could very well change. AMC is eyeing a 2015 launch for the show, so there's no rush. I'm going to say this is going to happen because it's just, it's too big of a show. Oh, yeah. The, the numbers and stuff they're getting, they're going to, of course, try to spin off this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. FXX scores cable and online rights to The Simpsons. In a massive deal worth as much as $750 million, one of the biggest off-network deals ever, in fact, more than 500 episodes of The Simpsons, now in its 25th season, will be available to watch on cable's FXX and online via FX Now starting next August, which is a new mobile app that FX Now is a new mobile app set to launch next month. According to the agreement terms, FXX and FX Now will get subsequent seasons of the animated series as new seasons begin their first run on Fox. For example, starting in August 2014, FXX will have access to 24 seasons, about 530 episodes of the show. Then in September of 2014, FXX will have access to season 25 when season 26 debuts on Fox. So what does this mean for the future of the series? Well, Variety notes that by paying so much for the show, FXX has taken The Simpsons off the video-on-demand market, and that means if you want to watch episodes online, it'll have to be through FX now. Basically, don't expect to see the show on Netflix or Hulu anytime in the next decade. Also, subscribers will probably have to sit through advertisements if they plan on binge-watching a whole season of the show. This would be in keeping with FX CEO John Langriff's advertising-supported TV model. It's interesting stuff. Yeah, and now is FXX different than FX? Yeah, it's an additional that Fox has. Okay, every channel, okay, all right. Yeah, in the Fox company, yeah. Yeah. The Legend of Korra finale debuted this week online. Big news, Korra fans. Nickelodeon announced on their official Tumblr page for The Legend of Korra that they will be releasing the one-hour book two finale online at midnight Eastern one whole week before it airs on TV. It all began this morning when Janet Varney, the voice of Korra, uploaded a video on the site asking fans to reblog the post. If it was reblogged 10,000 times in 12 hours, then Nick would debut the finale early. Lo and behold, just a few hours later, the goal was met. So head over to Nick.com for the book two finale episodes, Darkness Falls and Light in the Dark, anytime this week to watch it early. Wow, that's a awesome thing. Yeah, it all became available yeah. on Friday. And since we record on Sunday, this was actually a couple of days ago. But really, good stuff. I held off ever so hard to <laughs> do so, not watching it just so that our discussion would be unpolluted by what happens in the finale. And for our discussion of the finale, that's going to be next week. Yep. Uh, We're not going to give that to you early, Ed. Really, I've got to hand it to Janet Varney and getting the core of fans fired up. Oh, yeah. She did a video a couple weeks ago where she pretended to be Korra because it was a live action video and it was hilarious. Yeah. Because again, she did it again with getting uh, the retweets or reblogging. Yep. Uh, this episode. So cool. That's cool stuff. Great for them to have someone that's so behind their show and what they're doing. So that's cool. 
The Killing is coming back from cancellation again for season wow. four, debuting on Netflix. Someone is just having fun now with The Killing. The crime series was canceled for the second time earlier this year, and now, for a second time, it's been resurrected with Netflix announcing they will exclusively debut Season 4. Season 4 will be a short one comprised of just six episodes and is being promoted as the final season for the series. Though at this point, should we really believe them? I, I don't know. Yeah. Regardless, The Killing Season 4's existence is something of a TV miracle at this point. The show debuted to great reviews and buzz for AMC, but lost much of its support by the end of Season 1, with many turned off by where its murder mystery plot went, or rather didn't go, as it were. Season 2 saw viewership drop and AMC canceled the series. However, Fox Television Studios, who produced The Killing, were determined to try and save it and a new deal was struck that caused AMC to bring it back at a lower cost with Netflix paying to stream the series. But that with the numbers still low, and despite many feeling that the show was creatively much stronger in Season 3, the series was again canceled by AMC this year and thought to be dead for good this time. But yet again, Fox Television Studios has found a way for the show to continue, striking a new deal for The Killing to become a Netflix original series. If only this sort of thing were available when Firefly was around. It's really interesting because there is a very hardcore, much like I mentioned with Firefly, a very hardcore, very devote group of fans that are very interested in the show. And so that's why Fox Television Studios has been able to revive it twice. Yeah. It's interesting. In our final story, Bat Kid Saves San Francisco. As promised, the San Francisco chapter of the Make-A-Wish Foundation turned the city by the bay into Gotham for a day, fulfilling the wish of a five-year-old Miles Scott. You may recall Miles as the kid who, after kicking leukemia's ass, wanted nothing more than to spend a day as his favorite hero, Batman. Today, or this week at rather, Miles got his wish and pretty much the entire city of San Francisco got in on the fun. More than 12,000 volunteers showed up to cheer Miles on as he cruised around the city in a borrowed Lamborghini made up to look like the Batmobile. Batkid's adventure saw him answer a call from the police commissioner, confront the Riddler and the Penguin, and rescue the San Francisco Giants mascot, Lucille, before being awarded the key to the city by the mayor. As if that wasn't enough, the United States Attorney's Office and the FBI joined in, issuing stern indictments for the crimes attributed to the two supervillains. Even President Obama took a moment to record a vine congratulating Batkid on a job well done. Since the plan was announced a few weeks ago, Miles, who's been fighting acute lymphoblastic leukemia since he was 20 months old, has received an unprecedented outpouring of support from around the globe. So many people wanted to help make this dream a reality that it crashed the Make-A-Wish website. Just a great story to end the news this week. Yeah, and who wouldn't want to get in on that? <laughs> uh, it sounds so much fun. Oh, I <laughs> I saw a couple of videos of the thing, and you could just tell he was loving being Batman. I mean, I would love being Batman, yeah. but this kid, oh, it was making his life. This was amazing, and I just thought it was a great way to, to end the news with Nico this week. And that is the news with Nico for this week. For sure. All right. So with that, uh, we're going to talk about a show that says it can make dreams come true and miracles happen and whatnot. Here's Candy to join us for this discussion. Once Upon a Time with the episode Dark Hollow. Mr. Golden, Regina sent Ariel back to Storybrooke with an item that will allow Bell to locate a hidden artifact that could help take down Pam. But unknowns to them, two men have broken into the town with the intent to stop them at all costs. 
Meanwhile, Emma, Neil, and Hook attempt to find Dark Hollow, where Peter Pan's shadow dwells, in order to capture it. Mary Margaret is upset with David for keeping his poisoning a secret from her. So first off, let's talk about Ariel and Belle's adventures in Storybrooke. I felt that this was a really good Belle-centric episode for Belle because it really gave her an opportunity to be her own character, not just be the love interest of Rumpelstiltskin. And we we get to see her being more of this leader that we kind of expected out of her last season. And um, I, f- I think it was um, done pretty well. I think it was a huge twist that the two men that showed up was actually John and Michael, their brothers, yeah. Wendy. I think, And I think that's brilliant. And um, It made it make more sense. Cause I think we could get behind the characters a little better than when Greg and Tomorrow came to town. Those characters were characters that felt like they came out of nowhere. God, I really liked it that this was characters that were connected to the conflict. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. And it makes you wonder like how much power Peter Pan actually has because he could make them immortal you know, for the time being. And I think it will be interesting to see what they're going to do in the end, like how what's going to happen to them, like if they because they 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 failed with his mission, and I want you know because he seems to know everything what's going on, that I'm worried for them. But it was not it was a nice twist, and it's it's it goes well into our next next discussion topic, which was also a pretty twi- big twist, which and that is we discovered that Wendy is in Neverland. Yeah, I had a like I had a theory last season that I thought that Wendy would perhaps be. Or the, the leader, or the, or the founder of uh, the, the office, or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so I, I was, I was definitely dead wrong. But I, I still thought that she was going to have some sort of role within the show. Yeah. Despite of the timeline or whatever. But what did you think about it? It was interesting. I'm wondering what's going to happen after this. Now that they saved her, I mean, is she someone that's you know supposed to be eventually become a friend of Henry's? I'm not sure. It's interesting. Uh, but I think the idea is, I know you have listed on our notes that Henry's becoming darker, but I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, I think he's trying to be heroic like his dad or his grandfather would be. And so I feel like now that he has a girl to save, or at least had made him think that, that he feels he's doing the right thing uh, by kind of doing what Pan wants without really becoming darker. You know, he's getting tricked in a way uh, with his desire to want to be a hero. Yeah, that's pretty much how I feel as well. And I wonder, at, at this point, Wendy has to be at least, like, over 100 years old or something like that. Right. I mean, I, I, I guess, but again, with never, uh, being on Neverland, or sp- you don't like, grow up. Sp- spiritually, she is old. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and uh, obviously, John and Michael kind of grown up as well. But I don't know where they've been, so they you know, didn't age to, like, really old ages. I don't know how all that worked. I think it was kind of interesting that they decided to do this with Wendy because it takes a whole different perspective. It, 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 yeah. it, it makes this whole relation between Peter Pan and Wendy so much different from what we have seen so far because I have never seen it this dark between those two. I, there was a yeah. movie um, with, I don't remember who, who played Peter Pan, but there was a movie back in 2000, 2003 where it was a little bit more darker and so on. But, oh, yeah, that's Yeah. And, Peter uh, Pan was still the hero in that, right? Yeah, but it was still a much a, dark, a little bit darker take. Yeah. And um, it's it's interesting that now Warner Bros. actually are developing a, a Peter Pan movie called <laughs> Pan, and it's going to apparently be like Batman Begins Esque. So I wonder like if it's because of the portrayal that they're doing right now on um, Once Upon a Time. But I think that's exciting. But going back to this episode, I find it really fascinating that 
Wendy is there, and I'm wondering what kind of role she's going to play throughout, well, I guess these last couple of episodes, because I believe that in the second half of season three, we're probably going to go back to Storybrooke. I don't know how long they're going to be on Never- at Neverland. I'm thinking the Neverland thing may wrap up mid-season. Yeah. Uh, the second half is going to be a story revolving around Ariel and Ursula and that stuff. Possibly. Because I think they, they that scene that we had with Ursula was a tease. There's something bigger to come, in my opinion. That's an interesting theory. I, I would I would be down with that. Um, but that means they probably have to remain um, on Never, in Neverland then. Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know how that would all work. Uh, I think the thing that gets scary when you go to Storybrooke is making sure the storylines don't blow up into a lot of different directions. Like last year? Yes, I feel like it was very focused now. And, and this episode was too. But it did run the danger of skewing off in a lot of different ways now that storybook has been brought back into things. Yeah. And our last discussion point is the drama between the main characters in on Neverland. I'm going to be brief on this one. Yeah, Mary Margaret and David's drama makes sense. The triangle drama, oh my lord. That is the first <laughs> time I've actually been irritated with this season. I'm like, we don't the need... It's so annoying. We don't need a triangle drama right now. Like, no. there's... It's not interesting. We know that Neil and Emma are going to get back together at some point. Yeah. They need to give Hook another love interest. I just settle it there. Because, yeah, I, I agree with you. It was annoying. Yeah. But overall, pretty good episode. I'm yeah. liking the season a lot. Like I, like, like I have said in the past few weeks. And um, I, I can't wait to see what happens next. In, in next week's episode called Think Lovely Thoughts. So make sure to join us then. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Andy, for joining us for What's Pot Time. Another great discussion. Looking forward to seeing how the whole Peter Pan thing goes down and gets wrapped up next Sunday. We'll see how it goes. Okay, with that, we're going to move on now to talking about a castle episode. Uh, that was pretty good. Went a lot of different directions. Got a lot of different twists and turns. Entitled, A Murder is Forever. Castle and Beckett work the murder case of a famed relationship therapist. While it first appears that the client's secrets may have been the motivating factor, a rare, valuable object discovered in the victim's possession makes the case much more complicated. This week's episode of Castle was a little challenging for me to make comments on, because it was really all about putting together the fact to solve this week's case. But this hour of television was still successfully entertaining, through the mystery blowing up from what I thought would be a cutesy filler plotline of solving the relationship therapist's murder, making a commentary on Castle and Beckett's romance, could do a crime involving a jewel heist, shootout, multi-million dollar companies, and cartels. Nico, was the scale of this mystery continue to increase? What kept you invested in this episode of Castle? Were you surprised that the writers didn't scale it back down like they've been known to do in the past? Yeah, I think so, Dan. But to be honest, I was not entirely impressed or sucked into this week's mystery. I normally love these mysteries that seem to start up small early and build into a huge conspiracy-laden mystery late. But this week's episode just never really captured my attention. So the fact that it continued to grow in size helped to keep me invested despite not really being all that captivated by the mystery, if that makes any sense. <laughs> well, my biggest problem was what was interesting about this episode. That's why I had such a hard time writing about it. Yeah, I think you're like, right. I got it over. I'm like, what was? <laughs> what do we take away from this? What comes out of this? Right, and it wasn't an awful episode. It wasn't like I was like, right. man, what did they do? It's just right. I was like, huh, okay, Killer. that's done. <laughs> yeah, gotta get. They're gonna make up for it next week, which is good. So that's, right, 
fine, but still. Yep. And and with me kind of being in this position, I turned to my family for their opinions on the episode to just give me something to write about. And as amateur TV watchers, they felt the solution to the mystery was kind of an overload of information, with all the suspects being eliminated in such rapid succession at the end of the episode. That just kind of was something for them that was hard to follow. The identity of the killer and her motive was clear to my family, but the trail of facts that led Castle and Becca to this conclusion was really overwhelming on their end, because they felt there was a lot of names and places to keep track of with this mystery. Nico, did you feel this way about the mystery, as if its solution was this big jumble or avalanche of information called dumped on us at the end? Maybe, Dan. I can't really be sure, because I was, as I mentioned before, not entirely captivated by this mystery, and thus was not really trying to solve it myself as much as, say, last week's episode or any other week's episode of Castle. Being the wife of the rich guy we initially suspected is not a huge surprise, but I think the scale of the mystery helped keep people, other than myself and yourself, guessing to the end. There did seem to be a large number of names and suspects dumped on the viewers this week that were quickly eliminated in quick succession at the end of the episode that could have turned viewers off, but by then I was not really into the mystery, so I just sort of went with it this week. So I guess I was turned off well before that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, let's get this over with. Okay, <laughs> yeah. it's Blacklist on? Let's put yeah. the channel, maybe. I don't know. That's kind of where I was. I said, I explained that I think amateur TV watchers feeling that the solution to this mystery, I try. I guess I just try to justify why my family felt this was an overload of information. Because I said it came from the writers opening a lot of doors leading to the direction they wanted to go with this episode, but not stepping through them all the way. Sure. For example, I said this episode kind of started out with a romance, with the romance relationship therapist murder, setting up a commentary on the Castle of Beckett romance. Then we jumped to a jewel heist, followed by the focus switching to Ryan and Esposito, who was debating about who was the all-male in their partnership. And then the next thing we know, this episode ends with us talking about diamond smuggling, cartels, and corporate espionage. So it was like with this episode going in so many different directions and not embracing anything, we were having a hard time getting into it or getting attached to it. Nico, do you think this is kind of a suitable explanation to explain maybe why we felt this way? Absolutely, Dan. That's a great point on your part. This episode seemed like it wanted to do so much and ended up doing very little. They set up so many directions that this episode could have gone and never really committed to a single one, and thus the entire episode felt like a bunch of false starts. Probably another reason why we were not entirely interested in the story or mystery this week. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and really just to not to beat a dead horse or to give us something else interesting to talk about. Nico, as our resident science expert here at ATA, did you buy into the concept that the diamond, which was the key piece of evidence of this week's murder, being like this perfect man-made diamond? Is that something even physically possible? I like the concept story-wise, as it was sort of a nice change of pace to have one of Castle's wild theories actually pan out, kind of go beyond his imagination, with the relationship therapist boyfriend being this vigilante fighting the cartels in Africa. But uh, Nico, was it too much for you on the realism side of things? You know, Dan, making a man-made diamond is a real thing. And as the story or episode stated, they can make them, but only in very small quantities and sizes. Making one the size of the gem found in this story would be nearly impossible as far as I know with current technology, exactly like they said in the story. So that far, this story was realistic. As for the boyfriend being a crusader against the diamond cartel, sure, why not? <laughs> Just probably <laughs> less Indiana Jones and more Dr. Jones. 
Meaning that if that were true, it would be a lot more investigative journalist, lawyer investigating and exposing their atrocities and making it impossible for them to continue to sell their diamonds rather than being a vigilante crusader. But I'll give that up to the TV amping it up aspect. And I would say that it was realistic. Okay. All right. We'll go with that. And finally, I was glad to see Castle end on a positive note for the second week in a row. Guys, Castle worked out his issues with Alexis last week. And this week, we got a nice heartwarming ending as Castle moved his lion portrait, which delivered my favorite comedic moments of this episode to establish that they need to define their territory now that they are getting married. And with that, I've got to say the seashells Castle used to replace the lion portrait was a great throwback to the Hampstons episode which I really did enjoy. And anyway, with us having such a nice moment between Castle Beckett, I really think it was the call before the storm, because the preview for next week's episode shows someone who looks exactly like Laney being the murder victim, making Beckett think someone is trying to send them a message. And I'm wondering if that means one of the show's reoccurring villains is going to reemerge, creating an overarching conflict that may last us throughout the rest of the season. Nico, what did you make of the heartwarming ending between Castle and Beckett? Okay, do you have any predictions for next week's episode? You know, it was just a typical heartwarming ending as far as I was concerned. Didn't even really register much more than it was a sweet moment that tied back to their first weekend away. As for your prediction, I like it. I too think that it means that a recurring villain is probably returning and is trying to send the castle team a message by killing lookalikes to the team members and Laney is the first one. That could be a really interesting mystery and fun for us as the viewers to see the different victims and guess who is next and if they will just try to kill one of the members of the team because they don't have a lookalike. Anyway, just some of my thoughts about where it could be going. I'm not sure why I was so down on this episode because I really didn't dislike it while watching it, as we mentioned earlier. I just didn't have much investment in the mystery. And I guess it was probably all those false starts. Yeah. And again, I think it's just a filler episode. Again, this has really been the only week one so far yeah. this season. So we'll take it. We'll take a punch this week. Yeah. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to a Supernatural episode. That was kind of interesting. But again, some people may can chalk it up the filler as well. That was the Supernatural episode. Kevin can wait. When Castiel calls the Winchesters about mysterious disappearances in his neighborhood, Dean is forced to keep Sam and Ezekiel away from Castiel by asking to help Kevin and Crowley decipher the tablet. Meanwhile, Crowley asks for one phone call to hell in return for his cooperation. Recently, I expressed a concern about Ezekiel possessing Sam, taking away the need for Dean to interact with Cass. But this week's episode ended up proving me wrong. Guys, Cass trying to lay low by working at a mini-mart gets dragged into teaming up with Dean on a case. However, what I liked most about this episode wasn't figuring out that the mysterious disappearances were being caused by a misunderstood angel medic, but Dean helping Cass with his struggle of adjusting to being human. They're giving his angel buddy dating advice and getting it out of Cass that he's scared to hunt the supernatural now without his angelic abilities. I know we saw Cass deal with the struggle of being human a few weeks ago, but with Dean being involved, it was much more fun this time around as opposed to being secret, kind of inspiring almost, like in the previous cast episode. Nico, did you like getting another episode revolving around cast adjusting to being human? Do you think it succeeded on feeling different this time around with Dean's presence making things more fun? Dan, I'm really enjoying Cass being human, much more than I ever really enjoyed him as an angel. 
I know that might sound stupid or even crazy to many of our listeners, but I had my issues with Cass as an angel, and we've discussed those issues many times previously. But I'm really enjoying Cass learning what it is like to be human and understand the finer points of what that means to be a human. I sort of hope that in returning the angels to heaven, the rest of the angels need to become human first and really learn what it means to be humans so that they can then be better angels in the future. I liked Dean and Cass's interactions this week and felt like it added to the learning curve for Cass. I like the fact that Cass also learned a very important lesson this week about dating. It is always important to know for sure that you are in fact going on a date and not just getting roped into babysitting. Overall, this was a fun episode to see Cass as a human and learning exactly what that means for him going forward. Well, I like that theory about the angels having to become human to get back to heaven. Yeah. That feels very biblical-like. You know, it's almost like, almost, you know, kind of a Noah's Ark thing. You know, God wasn't happy with Earth, so he made it rain, could flood until it washed all the problems away, and then restarted again. Because I feel like that's what he's doing with the angels. He's cleaning house. So they learn some lesson and then they become better at their job. Yeah, I have a little bit of a crackpot theory coming up about that sort of thing that we'll get to when when it's time. But yeah, I like the idea of this angels having to be human before they can return to heaven and be angels again. And I think that might might just help fix some of the problems we've had with the angels in this series. Yeah. Good. Speaking of fun, why can't podcasts ever catch a break with the ladies? The first chick he hooked up with since becoming human turned out to be a reaper. Cause now his boss at the mini mart got his hopes up for a date, only to be left as the babysitter, because Nico said while she went out with another guy. Nico, as I said during our discussion on the last Cass episode, I'd be interested in seeing Cass have a romance with a human. But do you think it's actually going to happen? The way Cass's adventure in babysitting ended gave promise with his boss at the mini mart. Although, would this shut down our theory? regarding the series ending with Cass taking his place as leader of heaven, especially now that we know Metatron's spell can't be reversed. I'm actually hoping that Cass does not have a relationship with his boss at the mini-mart now that she treated him like this, taking advantage of his, of his good guy status. Yeah. I do hope we still get to see him have a romance, as I think that that would be the ultimate lesson for Cass, to actually fall in love. But do I think that changes our theory of him taking over in heaven? I'm not sure. I'm not entirely certain how they're going to handle the entire irreversibility of the spell issue and what that means for Cass returning to being an angel. I think it could actually go one of two ways. One, Cass decides that he wants to live a mortal life as a human and live a good life and go to heaven when his time comes and live in heaven just like all the other souls do and give up being an angel for good. Or two, his existence as a human teaches him the important lessons he needs to understand to be a better angel and returns to heaven to fix things and lead the angels. If the second thing becomes a reality, I have a side crazy crackpot theory that I mentioned before that Cass would institute a training regimen for all angels that they would have to have their grace temporarily removed and would have to live a life as a human from birth to death before they could be an angel so that they knew what it was like to live as a human and could better relate to humans when they interacted with them as angels. I know, a crazy theory, but I'm throwing it out there. <laughs> I'm liking it. It's good. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, when I was thinking it, I was like, oh, man, that would be awesome. <laughs> well, and the great thing is that this cast is here with like, because it has so much more development to his character. For sure. An opportunity for him to build and grow. I felt like he's been in the same place for four seasons. So um, it's good that, the, you know, the side character that was basically just there to give them information because getting development, that's really good. Yeah. 
and that's why they implanted, I guess, the Ezekiel plot line, because they still needed that, but also wanted to develop cast more, which is good. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, by the way, just for fun on, on my part, how the heck did Cass come up with kind of the theme song to The Greatest American Heroes Lullaby? I would think that he would use a classic rock song for being around the Winchesters. But I guess it worked in a get stuck in your head to the point that it could be this GTA episodes theme song kind of way. So what did you make of the choice for a lullaby, Nico? Actually, Dan, I was not familiar with his song from the show Greatest American Hero, which I never watched, but rather knew it from the many references in Family Guy. Oh, yes. A killer on the following sang it repeatedly while he was killing people. And from the Seinfeld episode where George used it as an outgoing voice message yes. on an answering machine. I couldn't remember where else I'd heard it, but apparently it was in the 40-year-old version as well. It's a catchy tune that gets stuck in your head for sure, so it's a, it's great for a lullaby sung by an angel. Plus, most classic rock songs would be too upbeat for a lullaby, in my opinion. I trade a black that following upset out of my head. <laughs> that ruined that song for me. Yeah. I love that. Great. Now everyone's going to think Cass is a serial killer. Right, exactly. Uh, all right, well, moving on to something more relevant. Even though I felt bad for Cass about being ditched as the babysitter. It did do a nice job of making the villain of an angel medic who didn't realize humans could be sad without being suicidal, relevant to the story, while making the reason for Cass got deed to stop him personal, since Cass fed into the category of someone who was emotionally hurting that needed to be healed. Nico, did you like the villain in this episode? Could how he fit into Cass's story? Yeah, I did. I thought the angel's motivation tying back to Cass enhanced the episode, but also felt like even without that piece of the episode, this would have been a compelling story to tell. I liked the idea of an angel whose job it was to heal other angels was now killing humans because he did not understand human suffering and the difference between true suffering and temporary suffering that humans go through on a daily basis. Once again, more evidence that these angels need my human boot camp theory. Yeah, it is a follow-up to your thoughts on the villain. He seemed to be a character that wasn't evil, just misunderstood. Exactly. And that makes me feel like down the road, in going with your theory, we need to see disoriented angels that the Winchesters and Cass or Cass are able to help. Because right now, the falling angels seem to be no different than demons, the Leviathans, or any other supernatural threat that just gets killed off at the end of the episode. Can I think with the angels now being stuck on Earth, that needs to change. I was asking if you agree with that philosophy, Nico. Obviously, you probably do. Absolutely. They need to find a way to reason with these angels, and one way that might happen is to somehow block their powers and force them to work with Cass and the Winchesters to get them all back into heaven. I'm not a fan of these angels as they are in the series, but I would be open to seeing them learn and become more like the angels we expect. Right. So I, I think that by taking their powers somehow, maybe they find that the only way for the angels to return to heaven is by becoming humans, and then they will be able to ascend to heaven and become angels again once there. That would be a way to get around Metatron's irreversible right. spell. And I think in doing so, it would also give the angels a chance to sort of experience my theory in the short term and learn what it means to be human before going back. Yeah. But really, I mean, this, this is a normal thing after so long, you know, the government or different types of groups need to be amended uh -huh. or repaired after so long. So it kind of makes sense. That this would happen with the angels too, that they, they've just, you know, kind of lost sight of things and something needs to happen to put them back on track. Sure. So I think, I think it's, it's a very normal thing for character development or just any, I guess, people in general. 
Okay, I think that's what they're trying to go for, showing that angels aren't so different than people. Okay, on the flip side of things, while Dean teamed up with Cass, Sam was left to work with Kevin. Okay, I like this because Sam deserves a buddy just as much as Dean. Okay, in addition, they both have a similar personality, so seeing these guys put their heads together works. Okay, to top it off, it kept Ezekiel out of the picture, which was a good thing because his appearances, I felt it brought the last couple episodes down a bit for being this crutch for Winchester's could lean on. It was fine the first time, but by about third time, they got old. Then again, these two guys didn't just interact with each other. Kind of talking about Sam and Kevin here. But they ended up having to interact with Crowley as well. Since he was the only one who could read the symbols, they were deciphering. Although, asking Crowley for help always comes with a price. And this time he asked Sam for one phone call to Abaddon, where she insulted him on the way he ran Cow. And for some odd reason, I almost felt sorry for him. And realizing that hell almost wasn't so bad when he was in charge. Okay, maybe the Winchester should put him back on top. Nico, what were your thoughts on Sam's storyline this week? Okay, do you think everyone would be better off if Crowley was put back in charge of hell? I'm not sure on that last one, Dan. Crowley of old was not so great as the king of hell. But I guess at least you knew what you were getting with him. This new Crowley, who seems to have an addiction now to the blood of the purified, seems different and maybe would be a better ruler of hell. Did I really just say that? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Sam's story this week was pretty yeah. solid. I like the team up of Kevin and Sam and could see that as a part of the building of the men of letters and the more academic side of the order going forward while Dean trains the future hunters on the other side. Yeah. And really, I think with Dean training future hunters, we need to see a younger hunter he takes under his wing on a more regular basis. Like, I'd like to see Garth again or somebody like that, if they can get them. Yeah, I think Garth is almost too experienced and has already yeah. had some mentoring by Dean. I think it would be better for a hunter that is, let's say, 18 and just coming into... So bring back those kids again. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Exactly. All right. We'll see about that. Maybe that's a future episode. And finally, this episode's ended with something very familiar to us long-time Supernatural fans. God, it was a character injecting himself with demon blood. But don't worry, it wasn't Sam. It was actually Crowley. He was obviously trying to juice himself up so he will have the strength to break out of captivity. Okay, with that thought on my mind, I wonder what's going to get cast back in the haunting game. I certainly hope it isn't something horrible like his boss at the Minimart being killed. But this is supernatural. Okay, things like that have a tendency to happen. But maybe not so much under Jeremy Carver's watch. Nico, what do you see on the road ahead for Crowley and Cass? I don't really know for Crowley besides being a source of intel for the Winchesters, but since we saw him injecting himself with Kevin's blood, I think he will want Sam to continue the trial to cure a demon and redeem his soul. I think he is done with hell and may even want a chance at redemption. Wow. How, how awesome would it be if Crowley actually became a true ally to the Winchesters and became a redeemed demon slash new angel or whatever he would become once cured? That would be awesome. As for Cass... I see him continuing in his human education, but circumstances and events will force him to return to the fight and enter the fray once more. I'm sh not sure if it will be the death of his boss that drives him into the fight, but something will. I just hope it makes sense and feels compelling when it does happen. Nothing worse than building up towards something and then not having it feel worth it. I think they have a good plan in store with Cass. You know, I think you're right. This is the best direction I've seen them take his character of probably the entire series. So I think we've got hope. And Crowley, you looked at it in a completely different way than I did. I thought he was juicing himself up to break out. Okay. But but I, I like the redemption thing even better. Yeah, you know. I last, hope they do that. You know, last week he was talking about when Sam saw him all by himself, he was yeah. kind of like 
I don't remember exactly what it was, whether he was praying or he was talking to himself, but it was kind of like some of the from the trial was seeping back into his yeah. personality. Now, when he's confronting you, he's still the old Crowley, but when he's in his moments alone, he may be changed and maybe feeling some of that regret some of the guilt of the millions of acts that he's committed and so it would be interesting to see if he continues to want to try and purify himself and that was what he was doing injecting himself with kevin's blood well that would be using mark a shepherd's acting strengths to its fullest yeah in a story like that it'd be great to see it might be one of his best performances i'm so, really looking forward keeping to that it. going yeah yeah definitely keep that going all right, so I think we're going to move on now to Person of Interest with the beginning of probably the biggest three episodes of the series, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. This one was a doozy. Could really kind of kick the HR thing into high gear, which was interesting. So let's talk about the Person of Interest episode, Endgame. The machine gives the team 38 numbers, and they realize that someone is pitting HR against their Russian mob allies with the intention to set off a war. Meanwhile, Carter's past with her ex-husband is revealed. This was a great episode of Person of Interest that did exactly what we wanted it to do. Kick off the beginning of the end for HR, which has really been past due for this series. However, this episode was a strange entity to me personally, because it gave us just the ending cliffhanger that I wanted to put this three-part mid-season finale into high gear, but the road the writers took to get us there was quite different than I expected, because I thought the person of interest team was going to work together to take H-Star down, because start of Carter working against them. Guess I know this show always tends to go in the opposite direction of what's expected, because it's normally a pleasant surprise to me, but this time around it made me a little nervous. Although, before we get into my reasons why I was nervous, let's get Nico into this conversation by asking him if he was surprised to see Carter go against the person of interest team, could take you down HR, instead of working with them. I mean, I get Carter telling Reese to stay, not ever going at HR directly, because it would impede his mission to help persons of interest, but her crossing lines that even Reese and Finch felt uncomfortable about didn't sit right with me, because it was such a far departure from Carter, acting as the team's conscience, since she came on board. Did you feel the same way, Nico? You know, Dan, initially maybe I did feel it was too far for Carter to go, but then I realized that her normal cool demeanor and personal moral compass that also acts as the conscience of the person of interest team was being clouded by her desire for revenge. I was all right with this choice on Carter's part, mainly because of how this episode ended and bringing the team in and her trying to do it the right way. I was probably getting a little nervous like you were. Yeah. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more going forward. But I think that was the intensity and the excitement of the episode as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. That this was in, feel that way. This was intended. We were supposed to feel this way. Yeah. Now, if you remember from our discussion on the season's premiere, I expressed a concern about Carter going dark this season. Her losing her morality and taking down HR, which ended up being resolved thanks to the introduction of her rookie partner. Now, the past couple episodes, I, I felt like we were kind of back to the Carter of old. Good out with the working partner dead, my fears once again took root with some of the evidence planting and framing we saw Carter doing this episode. Now, on top of that, I thought the flashbacks with her husband were going to reveal Carter's actions were a result of her developing post-traumatic stress from being around the person of interest team and the allies she's lost. Although I kept reminding myself, Nico, you probably did too, that we know better than the panic because this is person of interest where nothing really goes the way it seems. And that's exactly what happened with Carter as she had set it up for the FBI to stop it just before the war she created between HR and the Russians got flooded. Nico, were you also a little nervous? 
that she was going to go dark? Or did you think that twist was coming where everything worked out? Dan, I only really started to get nervous when Reese and Shaw showed up at the execution scene. Okay. I thought Carter had set up something like the FBI swooping in or something like that. But when I saw Reese and Shaw, for a moment, I got nervous. But it turned out it was for naught. As we discussed, I didn't ever really feel like Carter was going to go or did go super dark. And this scene was great because it proved to us all that she never let her hatred and desire to seek revenge get the better of her. And she was still the moral person that we knew from the first episode through all of last season. So I I was nervous. I definitely did get nervous. Yeah. But I think somewhere in my heart, I knew she was not going to go completely dark. Well, one thing to take note of here is and if they did it this way, I would have totally killed the excitement. But the machine didn't pick up on that. Right. It thought she was going to kill them all. Yep. So there, there's something with human emotion that comes into this that the machine can't predict or see. So that may come into play with something. Again, a machine can't detect emotion. I mean, that's a, a regular thing. So that's obviously what happened here. Okay, going back to my mentionings of the flashbacks with Carter's husband, there was part of me questioning if this was a rare person of interest retcon or plot hole. Because I was completely surprised to see the husband alive, kind of well in present day. Because I had thought Carter explained to Reese in the first season that he had died in combat or due to some sort of street violence. If this show was available on Netflix, I'd go back and look. But is there a chance you might remember, Nico? Dan, I don't, I don't remember. But it, as far as I know, it never really told us what happened to her husband or father of her son in the episode Get Carter, which was the first time we got flashbacks of her life. And she was the person of interest for the week. In that episode, however, while digging around in her car, Finch finds a picture of a man in uniform that we assume was her dead husband or possibly her father. He did look a little bit older, but they never actually say whether or not he is dead. As far as I'm aware, this is not really a retcon unless you are remembering from another discussion that I'm not remembering because I don't believe they ever really actually discussed it. But maybe maybe they did in one of their brunches or when Carter and Reese first started having meals together when they were getting to know each other after uh, he saved her and she became a part of the team. Well, th- those early days with Carter was so screwy. Yeah. With their character, what they were going to do with her, and how they were going to fit her in, and all that stuff that, you know, I just kind of went over my head, you know. I glossed that stuff over. Yeah, she may have mentioned that she had lost him, but maybe she was implying that he yeah. wasn't necessarily dead, but that he was essentially dead to them. So the main thing is, it just wasn't made very clear. Absolutely. Either way. So they could get away with having him show up because they didn't make it clear that he was totally, completely dead. Exactly. Because she could have just said, he's dead to me. Exactly. As that she was upset with him. Yep. But again, that's changed, obviously. Yeah. And finally, not only did Carter steer away from going dark with bringing HR to justice, she decided to end up calling in Reese for backup when walking into a trap. And I was glad to see that Carter's son convinced her to do this. Because the whole time she was flirting with going dark, I kept asking, where is Carter's son in the middle of all this? The ground her. We're kind of giving her the thought of that there's going to be consequences to her actions. Carter, with doing the right thing, this show's realism kicked in. Because Reese stepping in to save Carter allowed Simmons to get a picture of Reese, which he sent to every criminal in the city, making Reese next week's number. So with that, Nico, share with us your thoughts on this cliffhanger. Did you like how Carter's son convinced her to call Reese for help? And that resulting in the very thing she was afraid of, with Reese going after HR, directly impairing his mission to protect persons of interest? Was it a worthy kickoff to a three-part mid-season finale? You know, Dan, I like this cliffhanger. I thought the camera capturing Reese was a possibility that could happen on any of these cases, 
and it finally did happen. What will that mean for the future of the series? I think we'll discuss that in a moment. Was yeah. this a worthy kickoff for this three-part midseason finale? Absolutely. I loved this episode and felt like it was everything we'd hoped for these past long months hoping for the end of HR. Then this episode kicked that off. I'm really excited for the final two parts and just hope that we do indeed end the HR story arc with a bang and not too much of disruption to the status quo with the person of interest team. But I do think that it will do just that to an extent, but we can discuss that more in a moment. Well, I'm going to say it's going to put their backs against the wall for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. If only. And that's kind of where the speculation begins for me. Guys, I don't think Reese's face being shown to the world as the man in the suit is going to be something that could be resolved in the next two episodes. So it's not only criminals are going to be after him, but law enforcement officials as well. Because as the judge said in the episode, Nico always likes to cite back to, there's nothing he could do for Reese if he's persecuted for his vigilante action. On top of this scenario, I wonder if Reese's identity being revealed is going to bring second or third appearances from villains a part of the rogues gallery he's accumulated over the past three seasons. Or the possibility of former persons of interest coming out of the woodwork with the intent of helping Reese. Also, is it possible that some of Reese's enemies will go after the people he knew before joining the military or CIA, revealing secrets from his past? Or were the theory I had last week of vigilance causing some sort of terrorist attack blackout come into play with Reese's identity being revealed, causing the distraction they needed to strike? Nico, what are your thoughts or answers to these burning questions? Could you have any theories of your own? Dan, all good theories that are very person of interest I think that the release of Reese's <laughs> photo will have a lasting effect on the show and the effectiveness of the person of interest team unless the machine steps in to erase it from the police wires and prevent it from going further than the NYPD. I do think it will be broadcast across the city and every cop on the job will see it but i'm thinking the machine will remove it before it can go nationwide and maybe before it reaches the fbi that of course would simplify things going forward after hr goes down but that would be almost too easy i think maybe because the machine is proactively preventing reese's exposure that leads to missing some crucial piece of information that vigilance is planning an attack or in preventing reese's photo from being released it has to take down some specific networks that while down allow vigilance to perpetrate their attack leading to many irrelevant deaths i think if reese's id gets out then i do think we will see returning person of interest and villains from the rogues gallery returning to help and go after reese respectively that could make for some very interesting stories in the second half of this season which i like i just think it's going to be a huge disruption if he is exposed as the man in the suit yeah it, it puts everyone in a really crazy position. And the other thing of it is, is what is Finch and the team going to find out about Reese now that his name has come out? Well, I think Finch knows virtually everything there is to know about Reese. Do I don't you think, think so? Okay. I don't think he's going to be surprised. Maybe some personal stuff like family stuff might be hidden, but yeah. nothing that his army background check wouldn't have come up with, you know? So I think anything major, Finch already knows. And he still chose okay. John to be his man. So but, I don't think there's going to be... Have, but then you have Carter yeah. finding stuff out that she doesn't know. That is true. There could be some tension <laughs> between Carter and Reese. Although with how much Reese has helped her and saved yeah. her and done that, I think she could overlook most things, most things in his past. And Fusco may be 
you know, out of, out from under John's thumb, except for that I don't think that's why Fusco is part of the team anymore if he survives this next couple of weeks. I so <laughs> we got I, that to deal with too. I, I really don't see anything from John's past coming out that would hurt his ability to be a part of the team from the team's perspective. I think it could I, hurt I was just him. thinking more character development. Yeah, I think wise. we'll, we'll f- f- find some more stuff out. Yes. But I think Finch already knows it all. Okay. Kevin will probably help him deal with some of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've gone to the point where they are more than just partners. I do believe they are friends. And we've been talking about that for, I think right. that started at some point in last season. But with the, with the whole root kidnapping him scenario. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that That is really what did that. I think this is just going to be a crazy next two episodes. Yeah. I'm very excited about this. Oh, me too. Me too. Absolutely. Great. I mean, just a great ratings boost for the show, too. It's something like this. Yeah. Get people talking, get it going. Um, I really, really hope Fusco makes, out, makes it out of that. <laughs> I didn't want to get too much into it on this episode because uh, it's, you know, that's a huge can of worms yeah. to talk about. So we'll save that for next week. But uh, great episode. Very happy with it. And I'm anxious to see if we do find out stuff about Reese's past, what they are. And I think a lot of it is stuff that he's he's ran from or ran away from. So it's going to be interesting to see him face these things as well. Yeah, I agree. Because he may be facing challenges that are more than just bad guys. So that could be cool. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to talking about an episode that dealt with dealing with a lot of bad guys and unlikely heroes, which made this both of these episodes just a ton of fun to watch. So let's talk about the Legend of Korra penultimate two-parter episode. Night of a Thousand Stars, got a harmonic convergence. Earth. Fire. Air. Water. Bolin proves to be a hero when President Raiko is attacked. In the second episode, Korra tries to seal the spirit portals prior to harmonic convergence. With the beginning of yet another hour-long event for the Legend of Korra, Kai was pleased to see that after many of his aspirations backfiring, constantly striking out with the ladies, got to pretending to be a hero, Nuk-Tuk, and the movers, Bolin finally had something go his way by succeeding in actually saving the real president's life. Kai, despite finally achieving the praise he truly wanted, Bolin did not win over the heart of Asabi like I expected or I guess wanted to. Or was it that Bolin didn't accept it because he was too busy being distracted by his love interest in The Movers, announcing now that she's become his real-life girlfriend. Nico, were you glad to see Bullet finally catch a break by getting to be the hero who brought Merrick to justice and got Mako out of prison? Of course. Bolin has long been the unsung hero of Team Avatar. He's been a part of every one of their victories, but he rarely gets the acknowledgement that he deserves. This episode, after weeks of basking in his own fame, he finally stepped up to become the hero he was meant to be. I liked it. Great stuff. It's just funny stuff, too. I loved how it happened on the, uh, oh, what's the sport called? Pro-bending. Pro-bending court, yes. Yeah. That was very funny. I also thought it was kind of hilarious that even after he was in jail, they went to Varric for something. Yeah. <laughs> he had his assistant in jail. Well, I, I got a kick out of while they were watching the movie and he starts taking on the real bad guys and yeah. he's on the bending platform and the announcer guy starts yes. announcing in the stands just to yeah. the people around him it, it was pretty funny he's breaking a lot of rules doing this but we don't <laughs> care because he's beating up on the bad guys yeah very fun scene they just had a lot of fun god really what we saw of the mover the duck tuck film was hilarious as well oh yeah <laughs> great great comedy with this kind of stuff having a lot of fun but kind of to follow some of that up going into the drama of the episode 
Nico, were you a little disappointed that Bullet saving the day didn't kick off a romance with Asami after the scene they shared during the mover premiere? No, I think that the issue between Asami and Mako need they need to be resolved long before anything between these two could happen. It was great that she was there to cheer him on and to cheer him up when he needed it and celebrate with him after he'd saved the president. But stuff needs to get sorted before they can get together romantically. So I so, was I was not upset that it didn't happen right here. I'm beginning to feel that Asami and Mako maybe getting together is going to be like an end of the series kind of thing. And that, the, you know, that relationship's going to have all kinds of twisted turns. If they decide to get them together, they might not. Do you mean Asami and Bolin or Asami I think, and Mako? I think, I think it's going to end with, I mean, I think it's going to end with Asami and Bolin together. Okay. I'm sorry. All right. Yeah. Yes. I'm going, to, I'm going to say it ends with them together. I think Mako and Korra is what that's going to be. Okay. Got satisfy the shippers. <laughs> right. But I, I, think, I think that makes sense. They're one big happy Avatar family. So that, that's the way I see it going. It makes the most sense to me. Okay. But again, that scene where they went out of the performance, and they had their little chat, it was making me flash back on when Aang revealed his feelings to Katara. So that happening was like, oh, they should hook up. So that was affecting me. Okay. Yes. I know that's sad that at my age I'm into that sort of thing, but... Okay. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Yes. Good. Speaking of Asami, her streak of getting the shaft continued. Guys, Mako is freed from prison to have Korra run up and kiss him. Apparently, having no memory of them, breaking up due to the injuries she suffered while fighting her cousins. I mean, I guess that's one way of copping out on the romance drama to get right into the action using the old memory loss trick. But it does not come without consequences because Mako just rolls with it in front of Asami, making her quite upset because they're supposed to be back to being an item now. Plus, to top that off, Mako has to find a way of explaining the whole situation to a very vengeful towards the bad guy's Korra. Although all of this, along with Asami's anger, is left on the cutting room floor because there's a bigger fish to fry with preventing Nunlock from now freeing Batu. Then again, even though it wasn't addressed in the episode, Nico, how long can Asami go without her anger towards Mako getting the better of her? Do you think the writers just having Korra forget her argument with Mako was some sort of a cop-out to keep the action going? Also, do you think Vatu could exploit the fact Mako is keeping a secret from Korra to fuel the hatred that acts as his source of power? I do feel this was sort of a cop-out in a sense, but I think it's a kick-it-down-the-road sort of deal rather than completely sweep it under the rug. So I do think they will deal with it in some manner down the road. Asami will keep her cool with the whole thing as long as there is an immediate danger. But as soon as the action lets up and things start to calm down, she will need to confront Mako and force him to choose. I'm not a huge fan of how things are going and feel like we've returned to the love triangle of season one that I thought we'd left in the past. Could Vatu and Unalak use this lie to their advantage to drive a wedge between Mako and Korra and split Team Avatar? Absolutely, but I'm not sure that's where I see this going. I think we will see the Avatar versus the Dark Avatar battle and the whole love triangle will not factor into it, at least in the short term. I could, of course, be wrong, but I don't see any need for that. I more see this as a tactic that Vatu uses in the final battle. Yeah, I just don't think it needs to be there. Right, right. I mean, I was just thinking it's more like, kind of like a, almost like, it, for example, I was thinking of, it was like a Batman scarecrow fear, fear gas kind of thing. Okay. You know, he made him, uh, Batman afraid he failed his father. Uh-huh. Kind of that messed his tactics up. Yep. I was wondering if that, that was something with Korra that Vatu was going to do, saying, you know, no one cares about you or everyone's lying to you. 
kind of thing and just mess with her head. That's kind of what I was looking at seeing happening with that. Yeah, it could throw her off in the short term and be that right. thing that allows him to escape when she's about to end the, yeah. the final battle and it extends the battle. And that I could see that and it would work okay in that sense, but I don't really need it to be a big, huge factor that goes yeah. multiple episodes or goes into what we think next season will be. And the other thing is I think they've backed themselves into a quarter where they're just going to have to keep doing this. Cora and Marco getting together, kind of breaking up over and over again. Come, I think that's why, even though we rotted it really bad, it was smart they waited on Katara and Aang because they didn't have to do this getting together, breaking up thing. And I feel like now they're stuck kind of having to do that and the triangle just to keep things interesting because... As you know, with many shows, the romance staying together and them trying to make a, a go of the relationship is not as entertaining as when they're broken up or trying to get together. Absolutely so there's true. that. So, but again, this is a kid's show. Maybe they can make it work. Guys, for my uh, last thought on the first episode, the president still was against providing the Northern Water Tribe with military reinforcements, even with Tenzin backing Korra's plea. Nico, do you think the president was still against sending reinforcements for the legitimate reason of protecting his people, like he said? Of course, there are ulterior motive behind the president's decision, such as being a supporter of Unlock and believing he should be the true avatar. Dan, I think it is a legitimate reason. I don't think he's an Unalak supporter. I just think he is a political coward and was not willing to go to war when he had the chance to stop this in the early stages and now does not want to send his troops away from a public city when a bigger war may be coming. He's afraid that he will lose all support if he sends the troops to the south and leaves Republic City open for attack from this new foe. That's my opinion anyway on this matter. Yeah, it might be too much if he's with Umarok. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, that's possible. All right. Moving into the second episode, finishing up the first one. I thought the animation that went into Korra's father's fight with Unlock on that anti-team avatar's assault on that portal to the spirit world was brilliant. Because some of the best mixing of CGI and hand-drawn animation I've ever seen. But with how badly these action scenes went for the heroes, I honestly thought someone was going to end up dead. Because that especially goes for Korra's father, who has had way too many close calls this season. Nico, what were your thoughts about this episode's big action scenes? Were you surprised everyone was just captured without a character getting killed? Dan, the action scenes were amazing. The animation the last few weeks have been stellar, and that is due to the show switching back to the original animation studio as the original series for much of this season. That was a smart move. The action sequences were great, despite, of course, the negative outcomes for our heroes. I was glad that no one died in the episode, but I was surprised all the same because I thought it was a possibility. Korra's father or Boomy were the two most likely candidates, and I'm glad they gave Boomy the chance to be the hero that saved them from captivity. Maybe now Tenzin will believe some of his outlandish stories. My guess is that someone will end up dead before the series is over, and maybe even in the two-part finale next week. I guess we'll just see if the series goes that dark, because we've discussed we didn't think that they would kill somebody. But maybe, maybe it's about time. If they kill somebody, it's going to be an off-camera death. Okay. I think. I, just because it's a kid show. Yeah. I think it's too much. If they kill anybody off, they might not kill anybody off. So, we'll see. And about the animation company going back to the original company, I agree, it's a great move. Because I think because they've worked together before, Yep. they kind of knew what they were expecting. Exactly. Out of them and, and how to make it look right. And I think it really helped here. Fight scenes were unbelievable. That's all I've got to say. Yep. And from here, uh, this hour-long edition of The Legend of Korra seemed to capture the theme of God, likely heroes saving the day. As Boomy, Aang's non-bender son, was able to avoid capture by sheer accident, giving him the chance to free Korra and all the other characters that were being held prisoner. Because somewhere out there, 
Maybe in the spirit world, Sokka was looking down on all of this, smiling. Because what appeared to be Boomy's sheer dumb luck reminded me of the antics Sokka used to play in the times where he saved the day on the original Avatar series. In addition, the music that was used and the way Boomy fumbled about destroying Umak's camp while saving everyone felt like something out of an old Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin movie. It easily made the sequence probably one of my favorite comedic moments of The Legend of Korra, next to the pooping money joke from earlier this season. Nico, were you as amused and satisfied with Boomy saving the day? Would all seem to be lost like I was? Yeah, Dan, absolutely. As I said before, I'm glad they gave Boomy the chance to be the hero that saved everyone from captivity. I really do hope now that Tenzin will believe some of his outlandish <laughs> stories, as I mentioned, because I think it's funny that Tenzin just shuts yes. him down. And now we know most yes. of those stories were probably true. Also, you're correct in mentioning the use of the music during these scenes because it, it greatly did enhance and made them a lot of fun. I didn't go Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin, but when you mentioned that, I absolutely thought of some of the, those films I'd yeah. seen. And I was thinking, yeah, this is this is one of the reasons we love this show. The crazy, outlandish, <laughs> just everything going crazy. And it was a lot of fun. And I like the Boomy character because he is much like Sako. He's not a bender, but he still jumps in the fray and is is just as willing to try and be a hero. And that shows that maybe he's more courageous than everybody else. Well, that's the great thing about this show. And I love what it teaches kids with something like this is anyone can be a hero. Yeah. That's what made it so much fun. And then with Paula and at the beginning of the episode, same kind of thing. Great stuff. And and really this boomy thing. What a great way to re to pay off a reoccurring joke throughout the whole season of Tenzin always shutting him down. Yep. I mean, he got, he got his due. Yeah. And that was awesome. And I don't know how this show's zaniness like it makes me love it so much but it does i mean anywhere else it's it's, it's like a sleepy hollow kind of thing because like this doesn't make any sense on paper but when you see it it's hilarious it's great stuff it works yeah, yeah. and finally i guess you called it nico with the name and everything on unlock becoming the dark avatar because a result of this revelation can see next week's final battle with vatu getting with Korra thinking she completely destroyed him but there will be a small part of the evil spirit that manages to escape the spirit world with unlock which turns him into the Dark Avatar. The next season is going to be about the people of the Republic siding behind Korra, the true Avatar, or the President, who I believe will be supporting Umbek. I'm not totally sold on that, but that could be possible. Umbek, obviously, is going to be known as the Dark Avatar. So, Nika, what's your thoughts on this theory? Could you have any predictions of your own for next week's or... I guess the season finale that's already outlined. Dan, that seems like a great theory that will give us good story for next season. I said last week, or maybe it was a few weeks ago, that I thought the Avatar would have a partial victory in the finale that prevented Vatu from achieving his goal of destroying the good in the world, but that his spirit would be released and joined with Unalak and become the Dark Avatar. That seems to be where things are going for next week and will lead to the Vatu Unalak's Dark Avatar escaping the spirit world in some form and gathering forces for a showdown in next season. I like the idea of a true Avatar versus Dark Avatar major story arc for next season and really hope that's where it goes because that just seems awesome. <laughs> I'm, yeah. Man, I'm way too excited for this show as a 30-something-year-old man, but it is just so damn good to not be this excited. Well, and the thing about it is it's, it's the nostalgia for it. It reminds us back in those days where we were a kid, and again, this is a little bit 
Fast Fear Time, like, like when they came out with the Evil Green Ranger, everybody went crazy about that because they're like, oh my god, it's the evil version of the Power Rangers. Or, uh, you know, there's been others that are like Venom, for example. Yep. Oh my god, he's the evil version of Spider-Man. Kind of see how that goes. That's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, this is the evil version of the Avatar. Because I think that's having the same effect on the kids. Got us 30-something people or 20-something people that are excited to watch this next episode. So it deserved every single one of those 12,000 hits to see the premiere because, yes, it is worth being that excited about this. Because I want to see how it all plays out. So uh, it's going to be good stuff. Yep. I can't wait to watch this season probably season premiere probably after I get done with this recording now. Yeah. So I'm excited to do that. All right. So let's move on now to some more, I guess, comedic gold with uh, the sitcom section and a very, very good How I Met Your Mother episode worthy of a sitcom in its final season called the episode Platonish. In flashbacks, the gang contemplates the future of the love triangle among Ted, Robin, and Barney, while Lily and Robin issue a series of challenges to Barney. And with that, we're going to bring in our resident How I Met Your Mother expert, Wu, to share his thoughts on the episode. All right, normally for these episodes of How I Met Your Mother, I go through like bullet points of what I liked and what I didn't like and what really stuck out to me. I'm going to leave that to Nico and Dan because this episode, and I, and I wrote... This is much when I posted the, the episode from the CBS website onto our social networks. This may be the most pivotal episode of the last two seasons. In this episode, we find out the origin of, of Ted's move to Chicago or potential move to Chicago we learned in the eighth season. I love that. I also loved the introduction of Christian Miliati in more than just a a silly interaction with Lily and you know flash forwards with Ted. Here we she's a part of the gang now, Christian Miliati's character, the mother. She's a part of the the gang now and she gives Barney some advice that he probably wouldn't have listened to if he knew the person beforehand, and I love Kristen Milioti's eyes during this, the scenes with Barney, because it really does show, like, she has the ability as a performer, not even just as the character, as a performer, to just look through somebody's walls and look through their, like, insecurities and really see the heart of the person, and I really love that. I, uh, and I kind of lied. I loved all the, uh, the, the callbacks. I loved that they got, um, Brian Cranston to c- come back as Hammond Brothers. I thought that was fantastic. Um, what's really poignant and what's really heartbreaking to me, and I didn't realize this while I was, until I finished watching the episode on the CBS website tonight, was if Ted had, kept that naivete from the first season, if he had kept that alive, and he even Josh Ratner, the way he played it with his eyes, if he kept that naivete, maybe he would have gotten Robin. Maybe if, you know, if things didn't fall out between him and Victoria, him and Stella, him and Zoe, you know, all of these, like, major relationships he's had over eight years, 
if if they didn't if they didn't crush his spirit, maybe he would be with Robin. Maybe the party wouldn't have got that window that he you know that he lets that he got a second chance of because of Christian Malawi's character. It's very poignant and it's very heartbreaking and it's very deep for a sitcom to do and you know that's why it kind of sinks that high much your mother's ending because I don't think we're gonna get this level of quality and this level of heart-wrenching drama mixed with you know with you know farcical comedy and one more thing before I go I a lot of people in the High Metro Mother fan community have complained about this season that it doesn't feel really good, that the writing feels a little choppy. And I, and I can see that point, but I really do think that this episode redeemed any of the outrageousness that we thought of the whole Robin and Barney storyline from last season, Ted's reasonings for wanting to like leave and go to Chicago. All of that was redeemed in this one episode. I really hope the writers can keep the quality up. I can't say enough good things about this episode. I, from how this episode was promoted to what it actually was, I was actually very surprised. And I'm gonna let Nico and Dan say their two cents on the episode. Again, fantastic episode. Maybe one of the top ten best episodes of the series. I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Alright, Wu, and following up your insightful thoughts, I have to praise this episode for getting us back to McLaren's, a place I've really missed this season, by delivering one final tribute to the reason why we fell in love with the character of Barney Stenson. His ability to almost always come out on top when hitting on women. Yes, I know it's awesome, but we ended up with so much more than a tribute because it was revealed the mother was responsible for convincing Barney to take, wait for it, out of Legendary by settling down with Robin. And wow, what a payoff because it makes total sense for the mother to convince Barney to stop his antics with Ted acting as his conscience throughout this whole entire series. Plus, the mother turning down Barney's advancements makes her squeaky clean enough to be worthy of Ted Mosby. So, Nico, what were your thoughts on this Barney-centric How I Met Your Mother? Dan, I really enjoyed Barney's introduction to the mother and how she was responsible for his ultimate play, the Robin, and inadvertently, in doing so, ensured her own happiness by making sure that Ted and Robin did not end up together, thus allowing them to meet at the wedding. I really enjoyed the interaction they had in the convenience store and felt it fit perfectly into this very Barney-centric story. When I first heard that this season would be self-contained within the wedding weekend, I was worried that we'd lose some of the magic that made the show amazing and all the great scenes and locations, but I have been pleasantly surprised by the absolute opposite reaction I've had to this ninth season, which I think, in the end, will rank up there with the first three seasons as the best of the series. At least so far, that's how I'm feeling about this season. Because you're getting story development. Yeah. That's why. Really good episodes. And yes, I, I feel like even the filler episodes have nuggets that are just so good that you, you were like, man, that's so much better than the last three years have been. So I'm really excited about this season. Well, I think they had a lot of this planned out for a while. And it's really paying off. Yeah. Um, they knew where they were going with this part of the series. I think the last three years, they... They didn't know necessarily where they were going. They were trying to get to this point. And now that they've got to this point, it's great stuff. It's really going strong. And I've got to say, it really made me laugh in this episode, where the mother asked Barney if she, he knew any good people for her to go out with. And he said no. <laughs> yeah. After all that, have you met Ted? 
that he's not and all that. He could not think of anybody. Oh, my God. Typical Barney. Hilarious stuff. All right, so let's move on to talking about an episode of Modern Family that kind of was like that castle episode where it opened a lot of doors but didn't go through all the way. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode, A Fair to Remember. A day at the school fair for the Pritchard clan has its ups and downs when Gloria volunteers Jay to be part of the security, but he's paired with his nemesis, and Haley has an awkward meeting with Andy. Meanwhile, Phil plans a 20th anniversary surprise for Claire at the same time she has one waiting for him at home, and the football team's losing streak has Cameron in a funk. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family was Jay acting as fair security with the guy who tried to steal his parking spot. Jay continuously calling his shirt a blouse was hilarious. God, the joke paid off nicely when the guy had a snow cone smashed against his shirt. And Jay acted like his partner was dying with the lethal weapon saxophone music going around in the background. That was one of the doors that this cup of stone stepped all the way through in this episode. God, juice was funny stuff. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Modern Family? Dan, my favorite comedic moment also comes out of the Jay as fair security arc as well when the buddy cop gets slushied and Jay and he act as if he's been shot. Classic buddy cop scene parodied so well. Good stuff. I also enjoyed the guy getting up before Phil and blowing the crowd away with his rendition of Foreigners. I want to know what love is. Gotta take a little time. Little time to think things over. Uh-oh. Oh, wow. I better read between the lines in case I need it when I'm older. In my life. Turns out Harold Grossman, our pharmacist, is a rock star. His voice is the drug he should be dispensing because apparently it's a cure for everything. Okay, time to go. Let's go. No, 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 no. It's so good. But I was so disappointed because I was so looking forward to Phil getting up there. <laughs> I, I think I think this little like bit was was even better. I think okay. it would have been fun to see Phil get up there and, and do it and, and blow everybody away. But I think it was even funnier that he had been working so hard and someone else gets up there and just crashes his, his whole thing. It was funny. And then it allowed Claire to actually have the better yes. present this time. And that was great. Which kind of was something that's been a long time coming. So, yes. Yeah. You got to love the Chinese acrobats. Great stuff. Yeah, it was a good payoff. <laughs> All right. So, with that, we're going to talk about the Big Bang Theory episode. I had a very solid payoff as well. The itchy brain simulation. All started with the Big Bang Sheldon discovers a mistake that Leonard made years ago and forces him to walk a mile in his shoes. Lucy is confronted by Penny over the breakup with Raj. My favorite comedic moment from this from Big Bang Theory this week is pretty much stupid. But I couldn't keep myself from laughing when Raj made multiple references to Moon Moon the Mongoose, a cartoon character from India who taught kids not to play with cobras. I don't know what it was exactly, but the way Raj said Moon Moon the Mongoose with his accent just made me crack up every time. It's funny stuff. 
Also, at first, I got kind of disappointed with the plot line where Sheldon made Leonard wear the itchy sweater for not paying a late fee, kind of DVD rental, because it felt like a story that could take place cut any sitcom. But with the payoff, I was glad to see the Big Bang Theory's writers make it their own. Because Sheldon would only be diabolical enough to already pay the late fee years ago, could plant the DVD in a place where he could teach Leonard a lesson seven years later. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's episode of The Big Bang Theory? Yeah, Dan, it would have to be the red sweater thing. I I think (laughs) the whole fact that it was just so irritating to Leonard, and then in the end, it's all Sheldon teaching him a lesson, and he he just gets so frustrated by that. He's like, What? And then the other part that I just loved was the whole Raj dating sequence. And in the end, they do that quick succession of, What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? That was a good sequence and a good payoff to the whole buildup all all episode. You know, it's the little things like that that just make me laugh every time. Yes. Pretty solid episode. Good laughs. Yep. All right. So let's now run into the Airways Rundown. Sci-Fi's Pope for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know trauma. Yeah, we're going to kick off this week's rundown with the episode of Homeland, Geronshan. With his old adversary in custody, Saul makes the gamble of his career. Meanwhile, Carrie and Quinn scramble to contain a local police investigation. Kadmira comes to a crossroad in her marriage. Now that Javadi and Homeland has gotten that fit of murder and bloodlust out of his and its system, we return to an episode featuring the kind of stuff that makes this show worthwhile. One-on-one character interactions that can be far more intense than any over-the-top action thriller scenes. In theory, this episode should be the Homeland episode many of us were waiting for. Last week's final moments were at least partially shocking, and they set up some interesting possibilities for where Saul and Carrie's operation could go. And most importantly, this week, there was no Brody family drama, no name changing, no blank stares from sad Chris Brody. This episode was all spy stuff all the time. Unfortunately, though, this season, each time Homeland takes a step forward, it launches itself two humongous steps backward. Whenever the show makes a big move, whether it's the reveal about Carrie and Saul's plan, Carrie being captured, or Javadi killing his wife, it almost immediately sucks the life out of that move. This week, the team had to deal with the aftermath of Javadi's violent rampage, but dealing with it mostly meant throwing Javadi in a room with Saul so he could chit-chat with him while Quinn and Carrie took care of the murder scene at the now-dead wife's home. Somehow, the most interesting bits of these two stories ended up being Quinn and Carrie dealing with the local detectives and not really Saul talking to a murderous traitor. Even so, the Saul-Javadi stuff was fascinating here, and the episode title applies directly to these two. Geronshan is a poem by T.S. Eliot about an old man who looks back at his life and the futility of it all, and that is certainly a place that Saul finds himself in now. But does Javadi feel the same way, and is he willing to adapt to his new circumstances? I'm not so sure. Certainly Javadi seems to be playing on Carrie's Brody fascination in their scenes together. Perhaps he can't help himself since he's basically a bad guy as he's been presented to us. 
But those moments don't do the Carrie character any good. Yes, I know Brody is her weakness, but when dealing with such an important asset that she and Saul have worked so hard to get to, for her to just let herself be manipulated by Javadi the way she appears to be here, well, I expect more from Carrie. Just more evidence that we may be in for a classic Carrie meltdown pretty soon. It was also nice to finally see Dara Dahl get to be proactive, not just with his old protege Quinn, where things didn't go very well this week, but also with Saul, where despite indications last week to the contrary, Dar really stood by his man. How gratifying was it, however unrealistic, to see them lock Senator Dickwad up in that conference room and turn out all the lights, and then have a celebratory drink together. We also saw evidence that the Quinn and Dar relationship has come to quite a divide, which of course stems from Quinn's crisis of conscience. Wrong crime, right guy, as Quinn says. It's also funny to see how he and Carrie have grown so close, by their weird and damaged standards anyway, considering the adversarial way they kicked things off last year. And lastly, for all you Dana fans everywhere, you will be happy that there was not a sign of a single Brody family member this week. We'll see how long that lasts. Another good episode of Homeland. I hope it continues to be good, and I'm really hoping we get to see Brody soon. All right, with that, we're going to move on to another great series that I love week in, week out, with another great episode, and that's The Walking Dead with the episode Internment. Herschel and others try to stabilize the sixth cell block. Rick returns from his run to find the prison slowly deteriorating. With the collapsing feds and outside forces, the threats continue to pile on for the group of survivors. It's interesting. The Walking Dead unveiled one of the more action-packed episodes of season four thus far this week, but it also felt as though the series was taking a breath. There was plenty of Walker and Machine Gun Mayhem on hand, which was awesomely entertaining to watch, don't get me wrong. Internment seemed more designed to pause and present an alternative version of strength following Carol's brutal and irreversible decision, with Herschel acting as the other side of that life and death coin. The episode was built around the idea that Herschel would do whatever it takes, and frankly just be a straight up badass, to save the lives of those around him. He doesn't just want to save their lives though, he's also intent on maintaining their spirits if not their souls. More than that, the writers appear to have made a judgment and deemed him to be in the right. Sasha essentially said she is not a woman who believed in miracles, but is rather a calculator of risks who thought him a fool for risking himself by entering their own personal death row. She then conceded later that she would be dead if he were not a man of faith driven to action. Dr. Caleb flat out told Herschel that not everyone gets to live and to focus on the ones who can make it because if you're not ready to lose one, you will lose them all, which was essentially Carol's assessment of the initial outbreak. Given the chaos that erupted, there seems to be some truth in what Caleb was saying. Herschel would not have been able to save those who, who were taken out by the illness, but the man who was devoured by his own son turned walker may have been spared if Herschel had taken more drastic measures earlier. It's difficult to say. At the very least, one wonders if he didn't waste some energy by carting off the dead in an effort to shield the others in the harsh truth of their situation, which again stands in direct opposition to Carol's we-must-face-reality perspective. Perhaps he was right, and a sad soul can kill quicker than a germ. 
One of the reasons this season is working is that the writers are presenting big questions that don't necessarily have easy answers. Carol may not have been fit to lead, but as much as Herschel has functioned as a guiding hand for the survivors, he doesn't have the skills to lead full-time either. That becomes clear when he hesitates to knife the awakening zombie. Herschel had once believed that they could be brought back, and there's likely a part of him that still wonders if they're not slightly human. His confession to Rick was that he still had faith that there was a design at work in the midst of what seems to be a godless madness. Yet even Herschel must now concede that as Caleb said, there is a point of no return. Caleb meant in terms of this illness, but as we've discussed, this season is among other things an exploration of what we can and cannot come back from, physically, psychologically, and ethically. This episode served as a reminder that once they have let go of their humanity entirely, these people may as well be animated corpses, empty husks that were once vibrant living people. If this year's arc is about what it is and is not possible to return from, death, your past, your actions, we see that Rick did not give Carol the chance. She was not given the opportunity to come back from her choice. As he reminded Maggie, though, there is no room for self-doubt in this world, which is, again, tragically, an outlook Carol herself would advocate. For his part, Rick seems to be all cocksure and in control once more. His guttural, we will, in response to Maggie's assertion that they must do something, told us that he was in command and had returned to his original form. That shot of him and Carl in the garden as he held the peas with his gun in the background functioning as a nice metaphor for the idea that Rick was taking Carol's advice and understood that he may be a farmer, but not just a farmer anymore. What is clear, though, is that Rick seems to be finding his way to a leadership style that is a balance of the way of Carol and the way of Herschel. He will fight for their survival, for their physical lives as well as their moral well-being, but it's equally important to face reality, to give your son a gun if he needs it and is capable of using it wisely, and act ruthlessly when necessary. Because if you aren't willing to lose one, you may lose them all. Once again, we'll leave it there, but there was so much more I could have talked about. That is just how great this show and this season has been. All right, and now we're going to move on to talking about a show that just continues to get more and more fun every week, Sleepy Hollow, with the episode The Midnight Ride. As Ichabod and Abby deal with the horseman as it seeks its skull, Abby gets an unexpected visit from Andy Brooks. All I've got to say about this week's Sleepy Hollow is that they did an excellent job of pulling a page out of Supernatural's playbook by just deciding to have fun with the show's commanditive but ridiculous nature, which still probably doesn't work on paper. Now don't get me wrong, with this being a horror genre show, there were elements of horror in this episode, but they all turned out to be just plain cool, with the horseman skinning his victim's heads, setting up a fascinating national treasure-like mystery. Got the captain's first encounter with the horseman, converting him back to a watered-down version of the skeptic geology teacher he played in Evolution, which was probably one of the best comedic parts of that movie. In addition, the idea to make the Headless Horseman a part of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride was crazy, but yet genius, because that was probably the most intense reenactment I've seen of that particular moment in history. Got the cinematography that was done, got the scene with the horseman chasing after Paul, got his man was just brilliant. Got that kind of quality is what's making this show work, because it allows us to buy into its ridiculous nature, can accept creatures who go bump in the night, be thrown into our nation's history. On top of that, I really got a kick out of the culture shock the writers pulled with Crane this week, with his rants about having to pay for water, yelling at a museum tour guide in front of a bunch of kids for saying Paul Revere was yelling the British were coming when both sides were British, got interacting with the computer for the first time. Although what made me laugh the most was Crane being in denial 
when he got into an argument with Abby and the captain about Thomas Jefferson, Abby children was one of his slaves. Call in the montage where Abby and Crane attempted to destroy the horseman's skull in various ways was so amusing that I think even the people who happened to just be flipping through channels at the time got sucked right into this episode. As I said before, this was just a really fun outing for Sleepy Hollow that made me believe this great new show has successfully hit its stride. So where were your thoughts on the episode, Nico? And can you clear up for us whose side John Cho's character is on? Because he says he wants to protect Abby, but he's still acting as the horseman's errand boy. This week's episode hit everything, the danger, suspense, excitement, and humor, in fairly equal measures as the series Agreed. returned to its big bad, the Headless Horseman, brought another member into the gang, because I do think John Cho's character may be a new member of the gang, had marvelous comic bits peppered throughout, and came to a head with a cat and mouse sequence that resulted in the overall plot taking a big step forward in this, in a sense, them capturing the Headless Horseman. In short, the Midnight Ride was the high point so far in this already enjoyable show's yes. early run. I continue to be impressed with their ability to maintain the tone of comedy and horror in equal parts in this series. Oftentimes in past weeks, most of the humor has been quick little asides before moving on to the main plot of the week. But this week's episode had the comedy take center stage while moving the action along side by side. Almost all of the humor this week involved Tom Meissen, including Ichabod's amazement at Costco, paying for water, field trip lectures, drinking with a straw, everything involving computers and the internet and a team preparation montage connected by an upset crane finding out more and more about Thomas Jefferson. And my favorite, Ichabod leaving a voicemail for Abby. How great was that voicemail? (laughs) On this week's episode, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride was the latest real historical event to get the Sleepy Hollow treatment, and it was far more successful than Ichabod's explanation a few weeks ago about the Boston Tea Party was really just a diversion created so he could steal an important artifact. In this week's episode, The Midnight Ride, Paul Revere was racing from town to town to warn everybody that the regulars are coming. You know, because as Ichabod so angrily pointed out to the Terrytown Museum tour guide, we were all still British at that point. So it wouldn't have made much sense for him to yell, the British are coming. <laughs> but Re- Revere wasn't alone on his midnight ride as the Headless Horseman tagged along and chopped down three of his men in the process. How awesome was that third victim's decapitation? If you missed it, trust me, go back and watch it again. One swing, mid-horse chase, decapitation. Great stuff. And wow, we are morbid. <laughs> now, I know some people have been asking, why now for the return of the horseman? Where has he been since the premiere? The best I could come up with was that his comings and goings may be tied to the lunar cycle, and he can only ride or leave his grave on the new moon when there is no sunlight reflecting off the moon. This, of course, is only speculation on my part, but it makes sense since we learned in this episode that sunlight is the horseman's only weakness. Maybe we will learn more in the next week's episode when Ichabod interrogates him. At least that's what it looked like in the in the previews. Until then, I'll leave it with this comment. Love the return of Dead Cho. I miss that guy. That's what we're going to refer to him now as, Dead Cho. Yeah. That idea of him being a series regular would be fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I would love it. I would love him being, even if well, he's just a series recurring. Well, just just think about this team here. You've got a cop, a, a woman that's in a nut, in the nut house. Yep. You you could have an undead zombie. Yep. Got a guy from the 1700s. Yep. Got a team. And that's ridiculous, but interesting as heck. I, yes. I want to watch this. On paper, this should not work. It really should, but it is killing. Just I, absolutely I have killing way it. too much fun watching the show. 
I know it doesn't seem right, but I, I have way too much fun watching the show. And I think this is a very fun show to watch with a group. Yeah. Because it's just so off the wall, but it's a good time. So really, just props to these writers for doing a great job with this show. Because, I mean, this show had all the odds against it. And the fact that they realized it was so ridiculous and let's just have fun with it is really paying off. I agree. So kudos to them. Okay, now we're going to move on to a Monday Night Show that's beginning to show that it needs some work compared to this thing. You know, Supercall has come back on fire. I'd say it's the best new show of the fall. I think a lot of people agree with that. Okay, you know, a lot of people thought it would be the Blacklist as well. I don't think it's gone there yet. So we're going to talk now about the Blacklist episode and some of its problems. Got it's titled General Mud. As another member of the list is revealed, Elizabeth gets words of a very dangerous plan against the country's financial system. Also, Tom comes to Elizabeth's aid when she is in need. This week's blacklist was a very strange entity because I cared way more about what was going on in the B-plot with Elizabeth's foster father dying than I was with the main story of bringing down the anonymous, like, face-changing terrorist, General Mudd. Normally, this type of television watching experience can be chalked up to the episode's villain being weak, but General loved was pretty well established because he was played by a recognizable actor. He had a motivation that was really relevant to today's society of wanting to take down Wall Street and was left alive at the end of this episode, making me hope that this blacklister will return again to get back at Runnington for robbing him because his chance to shine was overshadowed by the big question, is Elizabeth Keene Runnington's daughter? And with the answer to that question seeming to be yes, I was glad to see this episode start out with improvement and the chemistry between Elizabeth and Reddington. James Spider has been fine on his end, but with Megan Boone being a newcomer, she's been good. But there's room for her to get better, and I think we saw that here with her making jokes about Reddington's money launderer being a suburban Oscar. As well as the hilarious scene where Reddington verbally turned the tables on the plastic surgeon to keep it secret that he's now a liaison for the FBI. Guys, for Reddington's meeting with the man he asked to be Elizabeth's father, I was glad to see it clear the air on the question we've been asking about Elizabeth's parentage all season. Guys, the lack of info about Reddington's background was beginning to make the overarching story drag a bit. But with us now knowing Reddington is Elizabeth's father, that opened up many more questions, such as why did Reddington kill Elizabeth's foster father? Was it to prevent Tom from torturing information out of? And what is Reddington so afraid of that he's willing to keep Elizabeth from finding out he's her father? Also, who was the girl that Reddington looked up out of the criminal database? Is she Elizabeth's sister? Because I remember it being said that Reddington has two girls. Oh, and can we get more scenes with Reddington threatening Tom? Because it certainly was intense. It may have been one of my favorite scenes of the series so far. Anyway, this is another solid, solid outing for the Blacklist because it gave me more questions to keep me watching for answers. So, Nico, what was your thoughts on the episode? Dan, I thought we were finally going to get our wish this week with a recurring villain that would be developed over multiple episodes. And maybe that is still the case since General Ludd is an idea more than a single person. But it seemed as though they caught the mastermind behind the organization. But maybe not. At least we can still hope for development there. I, too, was more interested in the development surrounding Elizabeth's adoptive father than the A-plot. Though I was invested in the A-plot until it resulted in another blacklister getting caught in a single episode. I sometimes wonder if my feelings about any given episode of the blacklist are determined in the pre-credits sequence. If that's compelling, it usually bodes well for the rest of the episode. If it seems like a setup for a procedural and doesn't have that hint of action movie adrenaline that the best episodes have displayed, 
it's often a bad sign. General Ludd certainly had the heart racing opening as fragments of a bombed airplane started dropping out of the sky on an otherwise fine day in the park. At least it was something you don't see every day. The General Ludd organization is kind of like a cross between the Occupy Wall Street and Anonymous organizations. If those movements decided to take things to the next level and actually start performing acts of terrorism in an attempt to destroy the country's financial system. About the only thing that really caught my attention from the A-plot this week, however, was the comedic scene between James Spader and Andrew Dice Clay in the plastic surgeon's office. Actually pretty funny this week. I know that my review this week is sort of all over the place. But that is sort of how I felt about this episode. My emotions and feelings about it were all over the place. We got more information about Elizabeth's adoptive dad, who is now dead, and learned that he and Red knew each other and there is some secret there, and the reason that Red snuffed him out before Lizzie could get there and adopto dad could tell her. So good needed information being released, just not all of it, which, you know, obviously makes sense. Then there was the promising start to a potential multi-episode villain that was dashed with a quick and easy capture at the end. Boring. So much potential wasted. Does that then waste this episode? Yes and no. See, I'm sort of all over the place this week. The show feels better when you're watching it than uh-huh. after it's over. Yeah, absolutely. That's the biggest problem with this one. And it, it's, it needs some more oomph. Uh, it, just, it doesn't have that fun that makes me want to turn, turn every week. It's trying. It tried with the plastic surgeon scene, but I just don't think it got there the way that Sleepy Hollow has at all. Yeah, I definitely enjoy Sleepy Hollow much more than I enjoy The Blacklist. I'm much more looking forward to doing that. And and again, to me, I'm kind of getting beginning to get bored of reviewing The Blacklist because it keeps falling short a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I, I totally agree. So that this one could be maybe dropped soon, just to warn everyone. Yeah. All right. So uh, with that, I think it's about time to jump into a comedy that I love every week. Even if it's not up to its own high standards, it still is better than a lot of stuff that's on TV. Yes. So we're going to talk about New Girl's episode entitled Menus. Hey, girl. What you doing? The roommates embark on a series of adventures after a large number of Chinese takeout menus are left at their front door. Are you a doer or a dumplinger? In this week's episode of New Girl, Nick and Coach were back in full force as Coach convinced Nick to start one of his workout programs and get into shape. Naturally, a setup like this was bound for some great physical humor, and in that regard, it really delivered. Following Coach's doing guy versus dumpling guy analogy, Nick's training montage was certainly a highlight of this episode and made all the more entertaining by Britney Spears' work bitch underscoring the shenanigans. Damn it! It's a great workout track! Jess's storyline this week wasn't quite as strong as Nick's, even though it began with a promising setup as Principal Foster rejected Jess's field trip plans to take her kids to the beach. However, this thread took an odd left turn when Jess started freaking out about the wastefulness of Chinese menus. I think Nick put it best when he said, Jess, this feels like a something else is going on type of thing. Are you okay to drive? You got crazy eye. Instead of confronting her situation more directly, Jess decided to take her frustration out on Hapu, which resulted in a needless story that had Jess feuding with the restaurant manager, Brian, over handing out menus around town. Granted, there was a loose connection with her conservation angle, but ultimately the menu subplot just wasn't that entertaining. 
Schmidt and Winston were more or less just set dressing this week, although Schmidt had a few humorous moments. As for Winston, well, as I mentioned, he was mostly just there to accentuate the other storylines, Nick's and Jess in particular, though he didn't really add anything substantial. His bum foot and MSG reaction were mildly amusing, but nothing special. Unfortunately, this was the weakest episode of the season, but still better than most other sitcoms. All right, now we're going to move into the best episode of this series this season, and that's the South Park episode entitled Black Friday. Come on down south, and meet some friends, man. The holiday shopping season begins. Got the boys try to figure out how to beat the rush, get them all for deals on gaming systems. Meanwhile, Randy gets a job because a security guard to help control the mall crowds. The NSA, Zimmerman, Miley Cyrus, you can have them all. Mike mine a console war. This was easily the best episode of season 17. With the PlayStation 4 hitting shelves this week and Xbox One coming out next week, South Park couldn't have picked a better time to release an episode like this week's Black Friday, and combining the next-gen frenzy with HBO's Game of Thrones made it even better. Much like World War Zimmerman, this week's installment did a great job of combining two titans of pop culture and organically threading them into one storyline. Granted, we've probably seen better game-centric episodes of South Park in the past, like Towelie, Make Love Not Warcraft, and Go God Go come to mind, but Black Friday was nevertheless ever on point with its console humor. Indeed, there were some brilliant moments here, particularly in the first act, like Stan and Kyle's tearful exchange of listing features. Stan, the PS4 doesn't have the seamless transition between games, movies, and TV offered by Xbox One. The PS4 controller has a touchpad interface. You never listened. I told you I thought the PS4 was better, but you never wanted to listen to me, Kyle. You just had your head so set because... Because that's how Xbox people are. I also died laughing at Cartman's line. Come on, Cam. Let these Sony f***s wallow in their limited voice control functionality. Of course, as I mentioned, what really made this episode stand out was its abundant references to Game of Thrones. The boys splitting into two camps and winning over factions in the school was an inspiring idea, and the fact that it all tied in with the console loyalties made it even better. For example, I love Cartman and Kenny's stroll through the gardens and the old man yelling, Hey, you damn kids! Get the hell out of my yard! F*** you, dude! This is the Garden of Andras! No, it's my damn garden! I'm sick of you kids dressing up and having talks of betrayal in it! Also amusing were Butter's comments about Game of Thrones itself, and specifically HBO's obsession with gay wieners. But have you ever noticed that almost every time they show a guy's wiener, that guy's character is gay? What do you mean? Well, it's just that they have a lot of girls' boobs and vaginas and stuff, but most times they show a man's wiener, it's because that guy's in a love scene with another guy. You think it's because gay wieners are less threatening to women viewers? Meanwhile, Randy had his own B-story that skillfully riffed on the Night's Watch, and he joined the local mall's fearless band of Black Friday security guards. This storyline, while not quite as strong as the boys, did include a few humorous scenes, like when Randy made small talk with one of the guards, who recalled in vivid detail the previous year's Black Friday massacre. Using the zombie-like Elmo shoppers as a substitute for White Walkers was also a nice touch, although the Elmo doll itself never really had a satisfying payoff. I did chuckle at the old captain giving Randy his scarred-eyed prosthetic as a kind of passing of the torch. That was good stuff. In some ways, this episode also felt like a sneak peek at Matt and Trey's long-awaited South Park The Stick of Truth game. 
Console war aside, the boys' outfits were identical to the ones they wear in the upcoming game. If nothing else, this episode was good marketing for Stick of Truth, which could probably use another promo boost anyway after it was delayed yet again. Cartman's line about game pre-orders and assholes in California was likely a reference to this delay. Great episode reminiscent of the glory years of this series, showing Matt and Trey can still have a great episode. As I said, the best episode of this season. Alright, so now let's move on to episode of Revolution. That was actually pretty good and did go interesting places. Come blow your horn. Aaron's deathly experience attracts attention. Miles and the gang try to escape. Rachel and Jean struggle with their relationship, which impacts Charlie. And Neville gambles with the Patriots. With this week's revolution, I liked how this show finally reached a point where it is challenging to predict. Because last year we could see stuff coming from a mile away. But with the darker tone that's been adapted here in the second season, this episode was made entertaining through its intensity. Because I could have easily seen Rachel kill Jean in her chemical attack on the Patriots headquarters. Because let me just say the scene where Rachel was about to implement the attack could be in complete suspense. Could tell Aaron was taken inside the headquarters as prisoner since his plotline is too good for him to just be killed off. Good addition, I thought the writers handled Charlie convincing Rachel to not kill her grandfather in a good fashion, because they stay away from doing the crying and pleading that made us annoyed with her character during these situations in the past. Instead, this time around, the writers were able to successfully insert Charlie's desire to not lose getting more family members into her improved, strong, silent type persona. With her comparing Jean's sins to Rachel causing the blackout, could delivering ultimatums to her mother, like you could go ahead and kill Grandpa, but you're going to have to live with the guilt. I also liked how this episode put a stop to squandering away great actors as villains by showing us Dr. Horn's obsession with Aaron came from despising his father for being a devout Christian that didn't believe in taking medicine. However, I think the most fascinating aspect behind Dr. Horn's motivation is the revelation that he has a brain tumor, because it made me question if Dr. Horn's grand delusions could acting like he's about to snap as a result of his sickness or being a sociopath. There's also even the possibility that Dr. Horn is so hell-bent confined a cure to his brain tumor could have people like Rachel remember him because he, like everyone else out there, wants to leave a mark on the world so he won't die and be forgotten. Guys, for things that didn't sit right for me with this episode, I was bummed to see Monroe ditch Aaron to save his own skin. Because seeing him interact could try to fit within Miles' very band of misfits is currently the best part of the show. But I'm hoping Monroe just realized he was outnumbered and ran off to regroup with Miles because the Patriots were just hoping to get Aaron anyway, whether he stayed and died fighting or took off. Anyway, I'm hoping for more Monroe next week, and that he doesn't just vanish for a few episodes, just to save his skin, because that makes his character look like a wimp, when he's clearly not. Finally, I feel like I'm beginning to sound like a broken record. Got this one? Good Neville's plotline is still continuing to go nowhere. Get my book. Got my finger keeps getting closer to pressing that fast-forward button on my DVR. Don't get me wrong, Giancarlo Esposito is a wonderful actor, and a heck of an awesome guy from what I've seen in interviews. But his character of Tom Neville, which held me afloat during the first season, in those moments where he was completely diabolically evil, is losing his purpose. And they either need to connect him to Miles' storyline, or make him a big bad he has to face. Because it's starting to kill this show. Nico, what was your thoughts on Revolution? I too am sick of the Neville story arc, as we have mentioned each week this season. While watching this episode, I was thinking, this show could be damn near perfect if it weren't for this boring Neville crap. Who's writing this drivel? And why not let Ben Elon work his magic and fix this story arc as well? Thank you. 
Dr. Horn is an effective big bad so far, that's for sure, and the decision to give so much of this episode to him, flashbacks included, was a good decision, quickly textualizing his background and what shaped him, including his motivation to save himself from the brain tumor that's killing him. The fact that even Truman had misgivings about Horn's grab all of Aaron's friends and execute them in the square plan also helps show just how ruthless he is and possibly opens the door to Truman turning against him in a future episode. That could be very interesting. Yeah. In this episode, Horn captured Aaron because he hoped that Aaron would use the, his nanite control powers to fix a tumor growing in his brain. This revelation now makes Horn's presence make sense. It just took a few episodes to get there. However, I don't know how necessary the flashbacks to his childhood were. They showed Horn as a kid with a religious dad and a sick mom, and Horn wanted to get his mom some medication because he's not an idiot. But his dad believed that praying ought to do the trick, and the two clashed over it. So once again, it was sympathy time for a revolution character in the flashbacks. But to what end? Was learning Horn's backstory supposed to soften us or our opinion of him or something? Because later in the episode, he was cutting Aaron open and stabbing his girlfriend. I don't get it. The flashbacks did let Horn talk about the invisible power around them, the nanites, and compare it to his dad's belief in an old, omniscient, omnipotent, bearded man in the sky. But that's about it. Those tests on Aaron, however, ended up revealing that he pretty much has a Wolverine-like healing factor on top of his ability to set people on fire. Horn decided to test whether Aaron can heal others by stabbing Cynthia, which was intense. But let's face it, a question we'd like to see the answer to. I'm guessing the answer is yes. Although, as a show, then they will have to deal with just how powerful Aaron is, and if it becomes difficult with the story to keep around someone who can do so much, they're going to have to be careful that they don't give him too much power. Well, the good thing is Benny Lunds had some experience with writing superheroes and those types of characters. Right. So I think he'll say something about it. Sure. Miles' arm was a surprise. This yeah. is TV, where we're used to characters bouncing back from injuries in no time flat. The fact that not only is Miles still wearing that bandage, but now it appears he may have a growing infection was a well-done surprise. Would they really have a main character need an amputation? Maybe. Revolution continues to deliver a stronger, more confident story in its second season. Yeah, that amputation thing. Robert Kirkman might want to give them a suggestion <laughs> not to do that. Yeah, they had to retcon, or not retcon, yeah. but they had to figure out a way to have Herschel not have a missing leg. Right. Well, and, and then, uh, is it, does it, the main guy, get it, he gets his hand taken off in the comic. Uh, Rick? I'm not sure. Rick gets his hand taken off the comic. Oh, yeah. I think they did make a decision not to do not that. Not to do in, it, yeah. In, in, the, in the, the show. show. Yeah. So maybe, maybe Miles will be another character on television that's got a hook. <laughs> right. <laughs> and speaking of a guy with a hook, well, not really, but kind of, we're going to talk about a Once Upon a Time in Wonderland, not regular Once Upon a Time, yeah. but we're going to talk about the Once Upon a Time in Wonderland episode, Heart of Stone. <laughs> In a flashback, Will Scarlet and Anastasia jump through the looking glass to enter Wonderland against her mother's wishes since she disapproves of Will. They both soon realize that life in Wonderland isn't exactly what they had both imagined. After being humiliated while attending a ball at, a, at, the, at the palace, 
Anna convinces Will to steal the crown jewels in order to get them out of poverty. But in an instant, Anna is caught red-handed by the king, who makes her a proposition she can't refuse, to marry him and be his queen to avoid prosecution. Meanwhile, in current Wonderland, the Red Queen convinces Alice to help her acquire magic dust in exchange for information about Cyrus, who in turn has managed to skillfully escape Jafar's castle, leaving the White Rabbit in a compromising situation. Because we don't want to make every review each week the same, we're going to skip the whole CGI special effects thing because it's a given at this point and we want to be able to talk about the show. So we're going to focus on just positive things this week or negative things that we had to say that which which weren't special effects. So Alice versus Red Queen. I felt that it was very fa- fascinating. I felt that the whole sequence with the darker little Alice was so twisted. Like, I would love to see that on Disneyland. <laughs> I don't think it made... I didn't, it didn't make Alice look stupid, but it shows that she's willing to to, to try to find the be, the best in somebody, even though they're evil person or something like that. So I felt that was fascinating, and it's it's sad that she had to be betrayed, but you can't trust the Red Queen basically. So, I, I, but I still felt it was really cool to watch. And um, yeah, what did you think, Nico? You know, I liked that scene as well with the when Alice fell into the test, essentially, uh, unknowingly fell into the test. And then the little Alice was, oh, she was evil. And it was great because it, it, we knew it was a test. And I think at some point most people came to that conclusion. But I think that that was really great way to show sort of what a conscience is. When someone's struggling with a decision, sometimes there's that angel and devil on their shoulder. And this time it was an internal struggle, but you were seeing the manifestation of that internal struggle. She really wanted to strike down the Red Queen, but in the end she knew that that was not the right thing to do. And her inner compass or her inner moral compass won out and told her, no, you cannot do this. You can always find another way. And ultimately she passed the test because she was pure of heart. And I like that. I really did think that that was a good thing to look at in Alice. Now, I wish we had seen a little bit more on the Red Queen side of why she has such a animosity towards Alice. Are we going to get that in the future? Are we going to know that? Are we supposed to just know that from the Alice in Wonderland Disney movie because it wasn't up going up against the Red Queen. It was going up against the Queen of Hearts. So how are we supposed to know that backstory unless they show it to us? So I, I'm, I'm really hoping that we get that coming forward. Yeah. And speaking of the Red Queen, her origin to the throne was told in this episode. And while I liked it, I was kind of disappointed because at the, when, at the start of the episode, it was fantastic, and they kept moving and moving and moving. I think that was really good. But then suddenly the king says, oh, I want you to be my queen. I'm like, this is too easy. There's, <laughs> and I know I know they only have eight episodes, left, and perhaps only this season to tell this story, but they could have saved this to episode eight or nine so, or anywhere close to that number. But no, they decided to, you know what, let's screw this great episode and make it right away because I felt that it was too simple. First of all, she sneaked into a ball as an imposter. Then she was seen stealing. And then, and apparently that's a turn-on for the king because, like, I've been looking for a queen and you are perfect. I'm like, no, this is wrong. But what did you think? 
Well, I think when she snuck into the ball, he was captivated by her. He was it was love at first sight with him and he was fascinated with her and the fact that she snuck in, she tried to be higher uh, of a higher position than she was. She did what was needed to do. I think that made him think this is a person who would be a good match with me. Has similar drive has a desire to be in a position like this and won't just take it for granted I think and so I think he was just absolutely fascinated and when he had to throw her out because everybody was watching and she was caught red-handed I think this is the ball of course I think he was sort of heartbroken because he would have given her a chance at that point and I think just that momentary interchange that they had at the ball was enough for him to fall for her. When he caught her stealing and knew that the only reason she was stealing was because she was a peasant and had no money and wanted a better life, he knew he could give her that better life if she was willing to grasp the opportunity he was giving her. And he's madly in love with her, so I think it's a win-win for him. So I think that's kind of why it went so fast was that he was just captivated with her. And so like I, I can see your your argument and it's definitely valid that it felt very rushed in telling this story this week. I think that it's it was okay in my book because I kind of understood that the king just was so captivated and fell head over heels for her instantly. Yeah, I suppose. And uh, But the good thing is that Emma Rigby, who is slowly but safe, stepping it up a bit each week. I think that's kind of good because I, that, she's one of the characters I've been having the most problems with. And and I, who knows, maybe at the end of the series, I may be able to say that, hey, she wasn't the cosplay queen. She was the red queen. <laughs> right. <laughs> and no against, yeah. against cosplay. I love cosplaying, but like she looks like the queen of cosplaying. She has all these amazing <laughs> dresses and so on. And... But let's move on. And then we have <laughs> Cyrus is finally free, but sadly not the right rabbit. And first off, really ABC? You would really let them to you would really let Jafar cut off a bunny's foot on an eight PM slot. Good thing that it wasn't bleeding because good lord, that was just sad. But Cyrus is free, I think that's good. I'm still wondering who that other guy was in the in the other cage who who, who I, I don't know what his name is, but he's the guy who plays uh, Roger's father on Big Bang Theory. But I was because he's such a, such a great actor. I was hoping that they would actually do something with his character because oh, they will. Oh, they will. Okay, I, good. I have a theory. I have a theory. I think he's the original Sultan, the father of Jafar, and Jafar will not kill him until he has his revenge upon him. And so I think that he is Jafar's father. That would make a lot of sense, and also that she, he kind of looked like he could be related to the actor who plays Jafar. So that's a good theory. I actually thought it for the what if this is the genie that we see in the Aladdin mythology? That is also a great possibility. I like that one as well. That he's another one of the genies because I know he has two of them already. So I'm wondering why he wouldn't just be in his genie bottle and trapped in there. That's the only reason I think it possibly the Sultan. Yeah, but um, but are, are we we are happy that Cyrus is free now. But I'm wondering, I'm hoping that it will it, it will at least take three episodes before they actually find each other. He and Alice. 
Yeah, maybe even all the way to the mid-season finale. Or, I mean, all the way to the season finale. Yeah, exactly. But overall, a really good episode. And um, aside from the effects and whatever, I feel the show is doing... It's progressing well, but they just need to move the show to another yeah, side I'm slot. In, I'm enjoying this week in and week out. If we could get away from just the issues we have every week, then I think this could be a pretty solid show and is a pretty sh- solid show. Exactly. And I think that because they're aiming to have this as a, uh, one as its own series, like it, I think that each season will be like its different story, like Torchwood was at at their run with season three and season four, so maybe if they do get a season two and they place it in another time slot, then they can most likely have a different story for next year if they do get a season two. But over if they do ca- get cancelled, they can just return in. They can just show up in the once upon a time show. That's the good part. But they will have to do it in a convincing way because so far they, there are no crossovers. There haven't been that many crossovers aside from the Rob, Robin Hood one. Right. Yeah. Guys, we will see you next week with our discussion on, on episode 6 call, Who's Alice? Ooh. All right, guys. See ya. See ya. All right. Now we're going to move on to a show that's all about superpowers and fun stuff involved with that. The Tomorrow People with the episode Sorry for Your Loss. <laughs> Steven and Russell meet a potential new breakout and report back to John about the person, while trying to keep a low profile from Ultra. Later, Russell learns that his dad has passed away, and a shocking secret threatens to destroy Jedekiah's career. With this week's episode of The Tomorrow People, learning about Russell's backstory was great, because even though I enjoy his wisecracks, stuff needed to be added to his character. Because this week's flashbacks did the job, through establishing each of the three key Tomorrow People as different superhero archetypes, with Kara being the victim, who was given powers to become a hero, Chad being the hero who found direction from his powers, and Russell being the hero seeking redemption from abusing his powers. I also liked how John went with Russell on the trip to his father's funeral, since it established a bromance between these two guys that poor John is definitely going to need to have when he comes back and discovers that his girlfriend is hooked up with Steven. Finally, it being revealed that Jedekiah, because of mistress, who has abilities, was a very interesting turn of events, because it added another layer to this already well-developed villain. Almost as if he has a craving to experience what it's like to be one of the Tomorrow People. Kind of what I assume began his jealousy over his brother. Although since he realizes he can't have their abilities, he wants to either take them away or control them through militaristic, and I guess now sexual means. Then again, Jedekiah's intent for the Annex Project might be to give him himself powers. On that note, this affair might be something that the Tomorrow People can use to defeat Jedekiah. But I think the guy Ultra will use to replace Steven's manipulative uncle down the road will be much worse, because that is sympathetic towards the Tomorrow People. Guys, for things I did like about this episode, the trial between Kara, Steven, and John is something that got me hooked on this show, because I'm anxious to see how it all works out, since I like all three of these characters in a way where I want the best for all of them. Unfortunately, with this episode, the process of Kara and Steven hooking up with the underage drinking got sex-talked showed signs of the Tomorrow People being a CW show from the Don Ostroff era, like a Gossip Girl or a 90210, instead of a show about a superpowered race war, which uses the life of a teenager as a backdrop. Honestly, my eyes rolled when Carrot called a Tomorrow person who hadn't had sex with someone of their kind a television, as it put the show on the fine line of falling into the trap of becoming Gossip Girl or 90210 with superpowers. So the writers better be careful on the amount of sex talk. 
Some of you might be watching this show for sex appeal, which is cool, because I know some people that are doing that. But I'm more about the superpowers, race war, okay, character relationship stuff. The other things that bothered me about this episode was the lack of Astrid being in it after Stephen revealed his secret to her at the end of last week's episode. I was glad we got a reference to Astrid, but we probably should have gotten more after getting such a big reveal. I was also a little disappointed they decided to kill Steven's partner, got Ultra, as I thought it set up great development for Steven as a character. With him being pulled between the philosophies over a rogue tomorrow person like John and a tomorrow person working for Ultra like his now former partner. Go oh, well, maybe the writers are going to bring in another character to do the same thing. Or maybe they might just use Jedekiah's mistress as a way for that relationship to be exposed. Nico, what was your thoughts on this week's episode? God for tomorrow, people. I liked the Russell backstory aspect of this week's episode and felt like it was yet another main character getting their origin story out of the way, but in a good way. I love origin stories and want to see one for each of the main characters, but at the same time, it almost feels like every week is the next man up's origin story, with this one unfortunately being the weakest so far. The only one left that I really need to see now is Uncle Jed's, which I do hope they do, but maybe save it for the mid-season finale. I think that's a good call. I don't watch the previews from week to week, so I was not spoiled on the new breakout Piper being Agent Nichols' sister, though I guessed it almost instantly anyway. I was shocked by Agent Nichols' death in this episode, however. Did not see that coming, though I guess I should have since she showed Stephen a kindness in the beginning of the episode, and that should have told me she was not long for this world. Speaking of things that shocked me, I was not expecting the Stephen and Kara hookup this early in the show. Yeah. We all knew it was coming, but this was way too early and will inject the messiness that it will bring way too early into the mix. I'm worried that this could lead us down a soap opera story arc with the love triangle it causes. I'm just not sure it was a great time to do it. I agree. I mean, it feels like it's turning into a CW show yeah. with the relationship backstabbing. Makes me nervous. Anyway, it was a good episode that had the necessary action and emotional scenes that helped us get to know these characters better, which is always good when starting out a new series. Can't wait for hopefully the mid-season finale where we have the Jedekiah origin story, which I am eagerly anticipating. For sure. Okay, with that, I think it's about time we jump into Elementary with another solid episode entitled Blood is Thicker. The murder of beautiful women, linked to a billionaire CEO, catches the attention of Holmes and Watson. Mycroft does his best to convince Sherlock to move back to London. I was fully prepared to discuss the case this week and the whole Sherlock is not going to leave New York despite his father's wishes thing. But after Mycroft's little phone chat at the very end of the episode, I had to shift gears because I have so many feelings and questions. In that final scene, I originally thought he was just sad that Sherlock stood up to him again. But in hindsight, the pose is downright supervillainy. We hypothesize here at the Reichstag camp that he may have even been on the phone with Moriarty. That Mycroft is playing a long con is certainly something I had considered when he returned, but silly me, I decided to ignore that idea because I was happy with the potential character development for Sherlock as he got to re-know his brother. Factor in the easy chemistry between Johnny Lee Miller and Risa Fons, and we have the makings of a very solid run of episodes that could have explored and explained elementary Sherlock in all sorts of ways, and ways that likely would have led us to meeting Holmes's father himself at some point. Of course, that possibility isn't eliminated just because Mycroft seems to be and likely is plotting against his brother. Easy chemistry between adversaries is vitally important to selling us on the relationship, perhaps even more so when one of the involved parties doesn't even know that they're being played. 
It's the basic principle behind Alfred Hitchcock's bomb theory of surprise versus suspense. If a bomb explodes while two people are talking, that's surprise. If you see the bomb hidden beneath the table they're sitting at while they talk, and you know it'll explode in a certain amount of time, that's suspense. Mycroft's phone call was the surprise of this episode Blood is Thicker. Us waiting for Sherlock to find out about it is the suspense. I'm excited about the avenues for tension this opens up because now every interaction with Mycroft has us yelling at the screen, the same way we yell at the unknowing schmucks with the bomb under their table. In theory, I'm also a little bit hesitant about this storyline, if only because a betrayal from someone close to Sherlock, so close that he probably won't see it coming, is more or less what Elementary did last season with Irene slash Moriarty, and for the show to dip back into that idea seems a touch lazy. It's primed to play on the the pillars of recovery and particularly the aspect of structure that Sherlock so nicely explained towards the end of this episode. Structure is more than just having a routine, having order in one's life. It's dependent on having supports that help provide structure, like Joan, Gregson, and Bell. You can see how thinking you're developing a new relationship with your brother or that the love of your life is so very dead and not a criminal mastermind could be detrimental to that recovery. Of course, if Mycroft is working with Moriarty, then this story arc could work very, very well. Irene slash Moriarty played on that issue of structure since the situation rattles Sherlock pretty severely. He obviously hasn't completely bounced back from it yet as he's still reading letters that Jamie's sending him from prison. At this stage, I'm not sure what variation Mycroft's plotting could possibly offer on this theme, but it's still very early in the season's run, and Elementary has garnered so much massive amount of goodwill so far, both in terms of characters and plots, that I can be patient and see how it works itself out. In other news about family secrets and betrayal, there was the case of the week. The details concerning a Steve Jobs-esque computer industry titan, complete with a life-threatening illness, no less, named Ian Gale, and his connection to the plummeting from a balcony and stabbing of a young woman. Half the fun of the mystery was stripped away because the episode fell victim to the law and order rule of if you recognize the guest star, they probably did it. Here it was the very prolific and terrific Margaret Collin as Gale's wife, who, just like Mycroft is potentially doing, played a long game to get her hands on a sizable chunk of Gale's fortune. The plan involved reconciling Gale with his illegitimate daughter to get the necessary blood to aid in his heart transplant recovery, only to then use that blood as the poison that would kill him. Colin's appearance in this episode was a decent enough possible clue, though given the role that Sadler is often cast to play on procedurals, there was every chance he was faking the whole dying thing, but her medical background all but sealed the deal that she was the killer. Thankfully, the other half of the fun of the mystery, watching our consulting detectives piece it all together, remained intact in this episode. This week's episode, Blood is Thicker, did a particularly nice job of handling Joan handling the case. I do really love how serious Elementary is about showing Joan's improvement in the craft of solving crimes, and here, her medical expertise and her understanding of the case to see it not as a murder of Haley Tyler, but of Ian Gale, offered the necessary perspective from which to consider the crime and solve it. Sure, Sherlock can deduce that a tree had a dead body under it because of its height, but Joan was the one to crack this case, and I like that the duo's respective knowledge bases are used consistently and in Joan's case to demonstrate an increase in skill. This was another solid episode of Elementary in a very solid second season. Okay, after another solid episode of Elementary, we're going to wrap up the rundown section with Andy and Wu's Glee Review. 
Thanks, Nico and Dan. My name is Lewis Kim, and alongside me is Mr. Andy Babakin. Welcome to the New Direction section. And Andy, could you please tell our audience the official description for this week's episode of Glee? The end of twerk. The Glee Club learns the dance of the hour, twerking. Meanwhile, Marley discovers Jake's relationship with Bree, and Rachel tries to convince Kurt that they should both should get tattoos. I I liked this episode, and, and but Andy Andy didn't. And Andy, could you please tell our audience what you did, and then I'll chime in with my thing. Yeah, it's it's rare for me to actually come out and say that. Oh, I was very disappointed with this week's episode of Glee because I really like this show, but given the circumstances of the season, it's it's a mixed bag, but this week was just, it was my least likable episode throughout both this season and maybe the series as a whole. I don't like this whole, I, I don't like this twerk that I think it's, it's the stupidest word that anyone has come up with. Thank you, Miley Cyrus. And actually, she I, didn't come up with it. That, that, that had actually, she made it quote unquote famous, but that, that turned, well, like, thank, she, well, it's okay. Yeah. I will rephrase. Thank you for making a super word popular, Miss Cyrus, when you okay, could actually you do something better. And but I, there were things that I liked. I liked the the whole Marley stuff because she was so it was so emotional and so touching. I loved the unique storyline because unique is one of my favorite characters. And the New York storyline felt really good and mature, and it's really showing viewers that these characters are growing up and they're starting to head into adult sections of their lives, and I felt that it made sense. What did you think? One of the things that I liked about this episode that you didn't mention is the Will and Sue storyline. I loved how he didn't back down. I love how Will went that extra step. Because one of the things that bothered me in season four was how passive Will was in the fourth season. But this one, we actually got a more, like, not aggressive, but, like, not, not a patsy Will Schuster, not a pushover Will Schuster. I really love the scene where he like, trashes up Sue's waiting room, and I love that Becky chimes in and turns turns over the xylophone a la season three. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Marley, Marley and Jake, we, we've said this off and on throughout the majority of the end of the last season and the, and the majority of this season. You really have to make them interesting, whether or not Marley starts dating Ryder, which I think is probably a safe bet of where they're going to go. Whether or not Jake and Marley do get back together, it's nice to see, it's nice to see that they're interesting again. And like I told Andy off microphone, you don't do that to my Marley Jake Parker, man. Because yeah, he was pissed. He was so pissed when we were talking about it. I'm like, okay, let's calm down, Woo. Let's calm down. He was like, no, you don't do this to my Marley. I, I take back what I said last week about Jake and Marley. You should, you shouldn't pressure a girl. Should be more like at least open to wanting to go, wanting to be more intimate with her boyfriend. But Jake, you, just because she's not giving you any, that doesn't give you the right to go cheat on your girlfriend, especially with that. Female dog. Trash. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That skinny, skinny, unattractive they... lizard trash. Okay, let, okay, let's bring it back to something okay, positive. Okay, so what did you think about the deepness of the unique storyline? I you you and I have talked about this off microphone like for the last two seasons. I'm not I've never been that big of a unique fan. I really think they were they were just trying to really combine Mercedes and Kurt together into one character. 
but no matter how I feel about cross-dressing, no matter how I feel about that lifestyle, you don't treat people the way those guys treated Unique in the bathroom. And I thought this was one of Alex Newell's best acting performances slash singing performances like in the last two years because she she really hasn't had an opportunity to to like express herself, like express that character. And I thought this one did a really good job. Love that. Will and Unique actually had scenes together, which I don't think we've ever seen before. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really touching. Yeah, I I love Unique. I think Alex Newell is an amazing actor. He does such a beautiful performance of this character whenever he gets the chance to, because sometimes Unique, she's put in the background. She's not used as much as I hope they will use her. But when they do episodes like these, these episodes, with, with Unique, that's when the show is really spot on with, with some of their characters and hopefully we'll, we'll get some more deep, unique storylines throughout the season because I think they have a really they have some really potential with this one you, I, I'm just gonna say Unique needs her her version of Blaine, not saying Blaine himself but he he needs what Blaine was to Kurt back in season 2 one thing I will say about Miley Cyrus for a sec, thank you Melissa Benoist for actually making me like a Miley Cyrus song but one more thing I wanted to touch on before we go I love the maturity of the tattoo storyline I love the conversations between Kurt and Rachel, loved that they mentioned Finnegan, loved the reveal of Rachel's tattoo, loved and anybody... I don't think that was Ray. I don't think that was Rachel's tattoo, I think that was Leah's tattoo, I, th I feel like there might be a chance that she may have something similar in real life yeah, yeah one thing that I want, wanted to say and then I'll let you say your final things I love that Rachel I, or I don't even think it's Rachel I think it's, I, I, I think it could be Rachel She's st she's standing up for herself, and when she stood up for herself, a la in her Lois Lane Terry Hatcher wig, which anybody anybody doubts that she could be Lois Lane in the future. Look look at that scene. She looks like Lois Lane. But anyway, I, I love that how she stood up for her beliefs against her director, and I I said to myself, you know what, Finn would be proud of you. Finn would be proud of you. Yeah, I will give this episode a week three out of. Five, which I'll is, give it a four out of five, just because I really yeah. enjoyed it. Music, music. I mean, Glee has like kind of like lost itself, kind of music-wise, over the last few seasons. But storyline-wise, I thought it was pretty, pretty good. Not the best. I like the unique song and Marley's song. Yeah. But we will be back next week with the next episode called "Moving Out." All right, guys. See you later. Back to Dan and Nico. All right, thanks, guys. Now let's move on to the voicemail section this week. The call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about Once Upon a Time. My thoughts on episode 8 of season 3. I thought this was a really good episode, don't get me wrong. I thought that this episode, it, its only purpose was to move the Neverland story along. And really, that's pretty much all that this episode was about. And I, I'm not saying this in a bad way. There really was no main character in the story. If... 
there's an argument to be made that the one main character of this story was Belle and her finding Pandora's box and giving it to Ariel so she could take it back to Neverland. Lord jo Joanna Garcia again in this episode. I hope they consider making Ariel a season regular for this se the rest of this season going on to season 4 if there is a season 4 because she is really endearing and really genuine in this role of Ariel. I really enjoy her. In, in just these two episodes we've seen her in. No flashbacks for once in this episode, but I did like the reveal of jo John and Michael. I did like their interactions in Storybrooke. Like seeing Storybrooke again, finally, after seven episodes of primarily just being in Neverland. The only weak part of the episode I can really think of is the, the love triangle between Neil, Hook, and, and Emma. I, I really like Emma's... Lying to both of them. If I had to choose between my, my boys, the only boy I would choose right now is Henry. Love the reintroduction of the Darling family in general. Not just John and Michael, but Wendy as well. I love Hook once again. I, I like that they finally reveal what Peter needs Henry for. It's, it's not anticlimactic and it's not a cop out. I just want to see more of the story to see where it goes. If I had to give this, episode of rating, I would give it a strong 4 out of 5. Really great writing, really great um, storytelling, and lastly, before I go, I think this was this was the episode where the writers not so subtly hint that we might not see Jennifer Goodwin or just Dallas because they're going to get married soon, and they could just be in uh, Once Upon a Time's version of off-screen well while they get hitched. I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. Back to Andy and back to Dan. See you later, guys. Bye. Thanks again, Wu, for your great comments this week. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners next week so we will have some comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. We did receive a, a voicemail, but for one of our other podcasts this week. So we hope to hear from some of you soon for the main podcast next week. For sure. And with that, it's that time again to get back into our closing of the episode because we have to sadly close out this episode. So what's going on next week, Nico? Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the fall 2013 TV season with in-depth discussions on Once Upon a Time, Castle, Supernatural, Person of Interest, the series premiere of Almost Human, and the two-part season finale of Legend of Korra. And then our sitcom section, including How I Met Your Mother, Modern Family, and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Homeland, Walking Dead, Sleepy Hollow, Revolution, and a few more. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Yeah, and until our next episode comes out, you can also check out our spin-off podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael and Wu where they basically select one topic from out of the entertainment industry. From anything around the lines of Power Rangers, the Star Wars, the comic books, or whatever, or Arrow, and they decide to just talk about that for an entire episode. Also, we've got Across the Airways DC Nation podcast. That's a podcast hosted by myself and Michael J. Petty. And basically what we do on there is cover all the imaginative content DC Comics provides for its fans, including comic books, Biocumulator, Smallville, Season 11, comic books, and more. Okay, we just recently did an episode continuing our coverage of the New 52 DC Comics story arc, Forever Evil, and the recent Batman story, Zero Year, which is really great. And if you love Batman, you should be reading that story. Also, if you're into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is another live-action drama that we don't cover on this show, 
Come, you can listen to our Helicarrier podcast, hosted by Andy. God, the Helicarrier podcast basically covers individual episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in greater detail. God, if you're a fan of Arrow, we have the same type of thing for you with Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast. And that's a show hosted by Michael and Wu, which covers individual episodes of Arrow. Also, if you'd like, you can contact our podcast in a variety of ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook. Come by clicking that like button. You'll be able to stay updated on all of our podcast episode releases. I'll be able to follow the movie and TV news that Nico and the other members of our podcast report on during the week. For that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airwaves. There's no the on there, it's just Across the Airwaves. Or you could join our circle on Google+. Also, we've got a voicemail, which you can leave to share your thoughts on any of these shows we cover. So whatever can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. We also have a YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for upcoming TV episodes, as well as big movies coming out in theaters. We have a trailer for Thor The Dark World. Up on our site, we've got trailers for Comet 2, Hunger Games Catching Fire, Captain America The Winter Soldier, and X-Men Days of Future Past on our YouTube channel. So if you're interested, you can see any of those trailers, check out that channel. And also, if you don't want to go back through our podcast, for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our podcast box app. And with that app, you can listen to our podcast and stay in contact with our podcast on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're running on an Android or Windows device, you can get that same content by downloading our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace. Also, our podcast is an affiliate of the iTunes Store. So if you visit our website and click the Download on iTunes button, get our Spotlight section right in the center of our page. All the purchases that you make on iTunes for the next three days will go towards helping support across the airways and keeping our podcast in business. So if you can do that, we can really appreciate that. And you can also help us out in the same way by clicking any of the subscribe buttons to our podcast located on our website. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babacht, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstein. Can you tell our next episode? We'll catch you on the airwaves. See everyone. Have a great week. And remember, all of you can be heroes. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.